Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mega Talks TV. I am Lee. I am here. I am joined by Spencer. Spencer, say hey to the people. Hey, everybody. Spencer, we are here. We are yet at yet another finale. We have uh, bombarded ourselves. We have we have jumped forward. We have pushed ahead. We have broken all barriers to within, I would say, six weeks finish the Queen's Gambit. Shout out to us for getting through this series so fast. How do you feel? Dedication. Just profound dedication. It's these moments that just really show your chops as, as a professional podcaster. And you too, my friend. You too. We are now on episode seven, which is the uh, finale of Netflix's The Queen's Gambit. This episode is titled In Game, very apropos. And we are going to finish out The Queen's Gambit. This is, um, this is a show that, you know, Spencer and I really hadn't talked about until we decided to do it on the pod. You know, I think, Spencer, I'll speak for myself here. Definitely not my favorite series that we've done. I mean, for me, it's Game of Thrones 1, Mandalorian 2. I'm a geek at heart. Um, I just want to live at a con. You know, I'm, I'm that kind of guy. Um, so something like this is really nice, but it's not fantasy. It's not another world. So it doesn't hit me in the same way. That being said, I will say this. When I watched Queen's Gambit the first time through, I watched it with my wife and we watched it very passively. It was just like, okay, well, this is a popular thing on Netflix. Let's check it out. I did so, and I would have said it was a nine for me. But now that we have gone through with a fine tooth comb, I'm going to back that up to an eight. I'm going to say that it's maybe it's a show that might be, it's the inverse of a lot of shows we do. It might be better on a one-time through than a rewatch. What do you think? I'm willing to back that up. Uh, I ended up watching this last episode twice because I actually did not particularly like it the first time I watched it and had hopes that it would improve necessarily on a rewatch. Didn't improve that much. I mean, it's. I'm ultimately of the view, I'd probably give the show maybe a six and a half, seven, of where it's whoa, a well-made... Whoa. I know, I'm going to justify it as we go through this episode, because this episode in particular let me down, of where we've talked before about there were a lot of different interesting things the show was doing in terms of developing its characters, in terms of developing the interactions, and also making the world of chess incredibly accessible and incredibly interesting. And while that chess world still remained interesting, the tournaments were still great, a lot of what appeared to be you know, the irons they had in the fire didn't ultimately get pulled. They ultimately just seemed like they just kind of left them there. And they went for an ending, which for me felt ultimately kind of safe. And I'm sorry, I'll turn my video so we can see, see you can see me too. Yeah. Uh, so, so for the, the, I'll explain what that is for the for the folks at home. We are uh, while you are only listening to us, we are now doing video chat so that we can uh, we can do all sort of uh, very secret hand signals while we're giving the doing the pod that you know nothing about. So that's what's going on there. So. It, I think the show almost disappoints me more because it had moments of brilliance. It had moments that would even compare to some of the best shows that we've watched so far. And then just really didn't decide to do much with them. It went with an ending, which to me felt really kind of safe in terms of its resolutions. They almost felt kind of a simple or not even necessarily at times earned, which ultimately, while it was heartfelt, still felt just kind of cheap, which is, dis which is disappointing for what the show I thought, so I thought I'm gonna, capable of. I'm going to... We're gonna battle that out. I'm not. I'm not gonna fight. Like this is not gonna be season eight of Game of Thrones. <laughs> this isn't a blood sport for us. And I say, come, it's a bring on the the how the, you know the the Bolton army. I'm here on my hill. I'm Take it off my rings, right last now. man. This is not the same situation there. I will put up a half-hearted defense of the episode though, because I don't. I don't. I think we're on a little bit different wavelengths. Uh, I definitely would give this series about an eight. I think it's a well-done series, but it's on a rewatch not as good maybe as I, I kind of passively thought it was first time through when I wasn't paying as close of attention. Well, 
Particularly for the ending, it seems like it's relying on that kind of initial emotional response. It's relying on that just feeling of heartwarmingness, which probably everyone kind of really need during the middle of pandemic 2020. And I think that that's a particular kind of feeling that may not hold up on repeat viewings, because it's really requiring that kind of initial just feeling of comfort that may, may not be able to be perfectly repeated. I see what you're doing here, Spencer. You are taking my comment about it not being as good on, on the rewatch, mm -hmm. and you are using it to justify your position, which you know I don't agree to. So you're kind of you're kind of boxing me in here. I don't appreciate it. So I have, I've just mathematically proven that we agree. I have just clearly <laughs> said that we have we share common views. The Venn diagram is there, sir. Just that's accept. A, it, that's a hard check. You have me in a hard check right now. I only, <laughs> my king is in trouble. <laughs> but let's uh, before we jump into the the show where we will do a, our standard show. We'll do a recap. We'll do best line of the episode, best scene of the episode, Spencer's Wikipedia spiral of the week. Uh, let's talk a little bit about some other pods that we're doing on the Manga Talks podcast channel. We have Mangum Reads and Pottery Around. Spencer, can you give us a brief rundown of what's going on on those pods? Well, for those that aren't familiar, Mangum Reads is kind of a digital book chat. We recommend a book or are recommended a book each week. We read it together and we come together to discuss and invite our readers to offer questions. Lately, we all realized that we're really fond of the mystery genre, and so we decided to go through the Agatha Awards, which give annual awards to the cozy mysteries. We, having finished those, have still no idea what the definition of a cozy mystery is, but had quite a bit of fun talking about them. But we're even more inspired to now read Agatha Christie herself, which is going to be a blast to go through. Uh, on Pottering Around, it's a chapter-by-chapter -chapter recap of Harry Potter, where we're currently in the Goblet of Fire, which is rapidly becoming, well, BJ and I have not read it before, our favorites, and it's long since been Sarah's favorite from, for years now. Um, but we're about mm, a third of the way through and really excited to see where it goes from there. Yeah, uh, that's great. So uh, check those out, Mangum Reads, Pottery Around. But also go to our uh, our website, mangumtalks.com, and check out our new pods because we have a number of new pods coming to you soon. Uh, we are going to do a shared experience podcast. We're going to do a podcast where we talk about um, just basically shoot the shit. A lot of stuff we used to do on Whiskey on the Weekends, which is a now defunct mm -hmm. podcast. All the Whiskey of the Weekends lovers out there, RIP. Two up to the sky, a little 40 out on the curb. That podcast is over. But the the folks behind that podcast, all four of us, the Brain Trust here at MangumTalks.com, we will we will soldier on. We will continue oh. with other pods. So make sure to check out our website for those other pods coming to you soon. And Spencer, we have a little bit of news to break to the audience about what we're going to do next. Because as I mentioned in the opening, this is the last episode of Queen's Gambit. So what are we going to do on Mangum Talks well, TV next? I think we've discovered something recently of where you were kind of looking for new reading material. You'd certainly got you kind of gotten into um, a certain mix of maybe true crime fiction or a bit of the, of the paperback page turners that I like to refer to as airplane as airport or airplane books. Absolutely. And I mentioned that if you were going to do that, you had to read some John Grisham. And I don't think you didn't you really read any John Grisham before. You were aware of him, but I'm not sure if you'd read any of his works. Heard of the man? Never. I couldn't. I couldn't have told. Like so. For those that don't know, John Grisham writes like. Um, Basically, like courtroom dramas. Very much. Um, so. He could he he branches out sometimes, but that's kind of the core of what he does. I couldn't have even have told you that. I could have told you John Grisham writes books. That that was about the end of it. So you getting really much into these kind of quick page turners? I said, okay, you got to go to the distilled core, the best of the genre. If you're going to read a page turner, read a really good page turner. So I recommended a couple to you, and I think it's fair to say you've rather enjoyed them. I've been I have been blowing through John Grisham. Uh, like folks who listen to this podcast know when I like something, I'm like a pit bull with a bone. Like I, it gets in my jaws and I don't let go. Like if I like Star Wars, well, well by God, I'm going to read every Star Wars book and every Legends book out there. Um, 
I'm getting that way with Grisham, weirdly enough. I really like his stuff. I've I, you you gave me that recommendation about a month ago. I've read The Rainmaker, The Partner, A Time to Kill, and A Pelican Brief in four weeks. <laughs> <laughs> I, and there are plenty more to find from there. And part of the reason I recommended these was because I had hope that if you enjoyed them, John Grisham's works are also very famous for being adapted to the screen. There have been any number of movies made about them. And so not realizing how much you have enjoyed these original works, each of which have their own adaptations, I figured it might be fun that we actually do some of those adaptations on Mangum Watches. Or turn Mangum TV into a bit of a Mangum movie run. Or given that they've all been previously on the screen, we can now watch them on TV, so it still counts. But we yeah. can go through some John Grisham adaptations for a few weeks. That's what we're going to do here on Mangum Talks TV, folks, for the next month. Uh, we are going to watch John Grisham uh, adaptation movies. So we're going to start with The Rainmaker. So the next pod you hear after this one is going to be a review of the movie The Rainmaker, starring Matt, Matt Damon, I believe. It is. And uh, love Matt Damon. Shout out Matt Damon. And I, it's going to be, we're going to switch a route on you. Spencer is going to walk through the recap. I am going to jump in and provide context because I've recently read the book. So I'll talk about the book. So it, it you know, it's on its head in a, in a number of ways here, Spencer. One, you're doing the recap. Two, mm -hmm. I'm the one who's read the book recently. I'm, I'm typically the guy rolling into these pods, not read a you, page of anything. You are bringing the expert <laughs> knowledge and legal commentary. I, as a lawyer, do not have the frame of reference to provide the kind of in-depth, line-by-line analysis that you can now bring to bear. And I'm looking forward to that kind of role reversal. So that's what we're going to do. Check it out. It'll be a lot of fun. If you like what we do, on, uh, if you've not, let, you're not read any John Grisham and you're not watching any of the movies... But you like some of the stuff we've done on Mangum Talks TV um, up till now, give us a chance. Give it a try. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. I think you'll like it. But before we get to uh, the, the John Grisham adaptations, before we get to our next uh, hill to climb, Spencer, we have to finish our current battle here. And that is Netflix, The Queen's Gambit, Episode 7, In Game. Are you ready to start the recap? I am, and, you know, we open with your favorite before all of favorite characters dominating the scene. Well, after a moment, I think we start with we start, we start with another flashback first, don't we? We do, yeah. Like, I think it's like the last five, I believe, episodes in the series start with a quick flashback of Beth, uh, Beth's mother, true mother, birth mother. And mm -hmm. this one is particularly tough. It's um, her mom talking to Beth and saying, you know, most times when people tell us something's for the best, it's for the worst. The mom says she'll be right back. Boom. Smash cut to the credits. Jump back to Beth looking at her mom. Now this, now we're seeing the young Beth actress again. So she makes her mm -hmm. uh, return here in this flashback. She's looking at her mom on the doorstep of someone asking for a guy. Here is what I took from this scene. Beth's mother, um, she's a PhD we know in mathematics. Mm-hmm. And it looks like she had an affair with an older man that birthed Beth. And she had gone back to the home of this older man who has a wife, has a family, and was trying to either offload Beth or get him to do something for Beth. And that guy gave her the firm stiff arm, said, you can't be here. You have to leave. It's your yeah, problem. Yeah, I was trying to remember. I was trying. I, had, I didn't look back to make sure, but I was trying to determine whether this was the same guy we saw from the earlier flashback that was implied to be her, well, the husband of her, of her mom. I didn't think it was the same guy, or at least they looked a bit different, but I wasn't entirely sure. Yeah, it's hard to tell. I mean, you know, because the, and, and, you know, that's probably realistic, right? Beth's not going to have a very good memory of this, but it does seem like she was, in this scene, Beth's mother was very desperate, and she was talking to this guy, and she was trying to get some help, and the guy said no. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, the guy said it's been five years. Uh, she says she came back because she can't do this. The guy tells her to get in the car, come back another time. Best mom says she needs help, and the guy says it's too late, tells her to go. So it's kind of, you know, the push-pull there in that conversation. Mm-hmm. The mom, uh, who I think his name is Alice, gets back in the car. In the car, Beth asks um, who it was. And Alice says, a mistake, a rounding error, a problem I have to solve. What problem, Beth asks, what I do with you. Can you imagine, Spencer, your, your parent telling you that you're a mistake, a rounding error, a problem they have to solve? I cannot, and I'm glad Ooh. that I cannot. And that is tough. It, it's all the worse because at this point, at this point, you can you 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 can put, put two and two together as to what's about to happen because we know yeah. what happened to her mom. We know yep. those circumstances, and we can assume reasonably that that's what we're heading towards. So effectively, she's trying to find a place to put her so that she can die, so that the, the mother can go kill herself and you know be resolved of that issue. You know, I just kind of want to stop Beth's mom and say, you know, you can just put her on the side of the road. She doesn't have to be in the car during the wreck. Like, you, you know what I'm saying? You can just, you right. can stop a quarter mile up the road, let her out of the car before the, before the wreck. I mean, you don't have to put, uh, it, anyway, obviously her mother was in a crazy, good, tough state. You know, there's old advice about never let the accomplishment of the perfect interfere with the, with the achievement of the good. This is where the mom seemed to have gotten lost. She had a one perfect scenario in mind, and when that didn't work, the plan falls apart. No idea what's, what the next step's going to be. Yeah, it's, uh, it was a tough one. Uh, mm-hmm. Very, very tough situation. Obviously, I think we're meant to take away from that flashback that, you know, the circumstances of Beth becoming an orphan and her mother dying stay with Beth uh, all the time. I tend to think Beth's... Beth's an alcoholic because she's an alcoholic, but I do think that there's some level of I drink to remove some of that pain, right? Um, Cut to present day. Cut to present day. (laughs) You're not going to give her that. She just drinks because she wants to drink. (laughs) I think think, think she has addiction issues in large part because of what happened to her in school. We never really see her, you know, talk with another person about the issue of past trauma. So we don't really know what she's really going with it about it. We're never entirely sure whether these flashbacks are purely for our benefit or she's even having them. I just always dislike the representation in media where someone has addiction issues and they have to give you a uh, origination story. Right. They need some issues. justification like, for it. It's like, no. Like, there's a, you'll meet a lot of people in life who drink just because they drink just because they have the gene. Like, that's just, like, you don't have to give us that big whole backstory. But anyway, they did. Anyway, we cut to present day. Uh, in a much, uh, much brighter mood here, we can, we can jump into scenes that I really, really enjoy with Jolene! Jolene! <laughs> Jolene, Jolene, my favorite character of the show. Jolene is in the living room asking Beth if the whole house belongs to her. You're no orphan. Not anymore. Um, Jolene's looking great, by the way, and looking confident as all hell. How'd you, how mm-hmm. do you feel about Jolene's reintroduction here into the into the narrative? Uh, Jolene swoops into this narrative and just takes it over completely. This is the narrative that was getting a little bit rudderless. These were characters that weren't sure what the next step was going to be, and Jolene don't have any time for that. Jolene is here to command the scene and does so immediately. She does. She's a scene stealer for sure. Beth is making tea. Ask Jolene what brought her back there. Quote, you don't seem to like answering your phone. Funny when she says this, Beth's phone is off the hook. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> Jolene puts the phone back on the receiver. Jolene says, Mr. Scheibel died. This is the funeral is the day after tomorrow. Um, so she and Beth could go together. There is a break in the conversation. Jolene looks around at just the, the disaster that is the home after Beth's bender and says, God, Beth. And Beth says, yeah, I know. Um, so, the, you know, this kind of gets to, you know, in the last episode we were talking about, you know, um, 
what's his name, Harry, uh, came in and he was trying to tell Beth, hey, look, he was trying to do an intervention, basically, into Beth's destructive behavior. Got nowhere. It does seem that just a, a knowing look from Jolene is worth, you know, four volumes of words from Harry, right? What? She, she, at this point, is the closest thing that Beth has to family. She's the person that just goes down to the roots of her as a person. A person that can't just be easily brushed aside. She knows her from the very moment she, she essentially established herself as an individual. So you can't just tell her to fuck off and leave. She's going to be part of your life whether you want one or two or not. And it seems like Beth's not trying that hard to push her away either. I think she kind of needs her right now in this moment. Agreed. <clears throat> Cut to that night. They're getting ready for bed. Jolene explains she's working as a paralegal. Beth, you went to college? I did. Kentucky State. I got a physical education scholarship. But when I found out the school used to be called the State Normal School of Colored Persons, it made me want to study history, which pissed me off way more than I already was. So I switched my major to poli-sci. I'm saving up for law school. <laughs> so, so she just had like a little academic journey for herself right there um you know yeah. obviously maybe that's what maybe that's what school's for yeah well, i'm a little bit disappointed all this happened off camera that seems like that would have been a fascinating story to watch or have you, you'd rather watch that than beth the 45 minutes of beth you know stumbling around her home drinking is that you what know, you're telling me <laughs> there's an element of that yes i mean i almost feel like they waited a little bit too long to bring jolene or even mr scheibel back into the equation with how important they were early in the series i'm a little bit disappointed that we've kind of waited the 11th hour for them to come back i think they were balancing enjoying jolene all of us enjoying jolene on the screen they had to know when they were shooting that this actress was killing it and then also the you know trying to drive home that these people who have set or are have drifted away from beth mm-hmm. are still paying attention to her because if, if jolene was around all the time that point wouldn't have been driven home right that people who ha- aren't talking to her for months or years are still following her chess career so i think sure. they are balancing the two things beth walks out of the bathroom jolene opens up the medicine medicine cabinet and what does she see it's the lipium <clears throat> and uh not just you know um gonna point out here this is not a one bottle situation mm-hmm. so what i'm thinking here is that jolene's got multiple doctors uh that's Be- my, beth. My, or beth has multiple doctors that's my guess uh yeah she is she's not only hoarding them, I love that she makes no effort to hide it. This is the same thing with Harry. Of like, you know, you invite people into your house every now and then. Are you going to put it under like a counter or something? It's like, nope, it's right there. I wonder if part of that is like, it's prescribed, you know. Um, Beth <laughs> protests that she hasn't had anything to do. Oh, no, no. Um, Jolene walks out and jangles a pill bottle. Beth says she still takes them. Quote, looks like you're doing a lot more than pills. Beth protests that she hasn't done anything today. Jolene, not yet. Anyway, uh, very funny. <laughs> <laughs> stay sober for today well you're not sober the day ain't over so who knows what you're gonna do mm. um i do love jolene beth uh that i just want to point that out. i just put it in my notes as i'm doing the <laughs> as i'm doing the recap i just wrote i love jolene beth leans back in bed and says she's supposed to go to rush at the end of the year she says she's scared jolene then don't go beth i have to go otherwise there'll be nothing for me to do i'll just drink mm. jolene well it looks like you do that anyway Beth says she needs to quit the wine and the pills. Says she needs to study chess eight hours a day. Apparently, they expect her on the Today Show. Something Man, like that, yeah. She's big time. Jolene asks who they is, and uh, Beth says the Chess Federation, but she says all she wants is a drink. Beth is being honest here with Jolene. It's the first time we've ever seen her be this honest mm-hmm. about what she feels she's supposed to do, the pressures of her, um, her passion and her professional career, and then what, you know, her, her the little devil on her shoulder tells her she wants to do, which is just sit at home, isolate and drink. And I mean, a large part of that may be is that 
Jolene was there when a lot of these addictions started. I mean, she has an addictive personality, period, but her first exposure to pills was with Jolene guiding her through it, or at least explaining what it was. And and by the way, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to back up and give Jolene a little bit of credit here. She did say, be careful with those crackers. She was like, <laughs> you need to be careful. I think that was the, I think that was the quote exactly, be careful yes. with those crackers. Um, Beth tells a st- convoluted story about a pop artist who, who bought a Michelangelo, got home and erased it. Beth says, I was shocked by that, but now she wonders if she hasn't erased her own brain. Um, so a couple things here. Yeah, it can feel like that after a bender for sure. Uh, mm. I think anybody who's ever <laughs> drank to excess can say you wake up in the morning, you feel a little frazzled. And it does seem like she's done this for weeks, if not a month. So God knows what she's, you know, what she's feeling like. I'm sure if she played chess right now, uh, our homeboy Jungjin uh, would kick her ass because uh, I can't imagine she's on her game right now. But uh, Jolene uh, takes a comical approach to the response here. It says, let's pretend you didn't just compare yourself to Michelangelo and <laughs> let's look at where you're at. Um, after, uh, which being here of all five minutes, looks like it's at the bottom of a fucking hole and it looks like you dug it yourself. My advice, stop digging. Jolene is the fucking best. Don't we all need a friend like that? Mm. Uh, Beth says it might be in her blood. Um, yeah, probably. Mm. <laughs> probably. I, Addiction I, is I, genetic. I, I diagnosed that pretty early. Um, her mom went crazy. Uh, Jolene asked if she went crazy or was always crazy. That's an astute question from Jolene. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Was your mom, did your mom go crazy or was she always crazy? And Beth says she didn't know. Uh, Jolene asked if her mom drank. Good question. Beth says no. Beth says no. I'm not sure Beth's in a position to really answer the question though, right? We haven't seen it. But I think Beth's frame of reference is pretty limited here, really. Jolene says she got her a present. It's the book Modern Chess Openings. If you can uh, go all the way back in your memory to episode, I believe, two. Mm -hmm. Uh, Beth was looking for this book as she was leaving the orphanage. Jolene admits that she stole it from her. She was pissed at Beth for being adopted. Beth, what about being a white trash cracker bitch? Jolene, who could forget? (laughs) Pretty good. So, you know, a couple a couple things going on here in this scene, right? One, you have the reintroduction of Jolene. Everybody's happy about that. It makes just watching the show easier because she's a compelling character and a great actress, too. Sure. You have the rekindling of the friendship there, which I think is good for Beth. And then three, I think you finally have somebody getting through to Beth that she's got to change what she's doing, that mm-hmm. she's going down a self-destructive hole, and, and she's got to back out of it before it's too late. Yep, and all of this is very useful, but not only to our character, but to drive forward a plot that has been kind of meandering now for a couple episodes because it's been focused on Beth kind of spiraling out. I would say if you have a, if you want to really criticize this show, it's that you know generally in any sort of narrative at a very basic level, you have a character that has a conflict, something they need to overcome, mm-hmm. and it's kind of unclear what Beth. This gets muddled a little bit in this story. What is Beth really overcoming at a very basic level? Is it the personal demons? Or is it simply just trying to learn chess and beat the world's best, you know, at a very young age? It's hard to tell. Is it addiction? Is it childhood trauma? Is it ostracizing herself, you know, ostracizing herself from her peers? Is it overcoming in chess? She has a lot of different issues and demons. And all of them are resolved by the end of the story, but we can debate how satisfying that resolution is. At least oh, I'm not sure they're resolved. The show, se- the show seems to be saying they're resolved. Whether we say that's bullshit, it's a different question. <clears throat> oh, no. I'm sure she went right home and started drinking again. I mean, she... Yeah. We probably, see, Realistically. Think, season two of The Queen's Gambit, which we're not going to get, is just Beth going to rehab. That's what I think. <laughs> <laughs> season two is Beth going full Bobby Fisher. It's going to be great. <laughs> 
Yeah, just uh, spiraling out of control, insulting Jews, and then end up in rehab. Cut to the next day. They're in the car, and Jimmy Mac. Oh, Jimmy Mac by Martha and the Vandals is playing. Great song. Mm-hmm. Beth asked how much a paralegal makes. Anyway, <clears throat> Jolene, not enough to buy this car, if that's what you're wondering. I think that is what Beth was wondering. Sure. She says it was a gift from one of the partners at the farm. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Did you know where she was going when she said that? Yeah. Yeah. You work in yeah. law firm, Spencer. You know about that. No, I, I know what HR tells me about that now. <laughs> there are entire HR programs in the subject of that stereotype in the law. A different time, my friend. Different time. Um, uh, he said, "She says he wants to marry me. As soon as he divorces the wife he's already got, uh, this is now all right. Reversing roles now. Now mm-hmm. it's Beth with the voice of reason. Sounds like a real peach uh, from <laughs> from her uh, from Jolene. He's white too. Rick, his name is. He's teaching me how to play squash. Squash, a game rich white people play. Spencer, do you know? How, all right, so I can. Mm. All right, funny joke." Yeah. All right. But you run it. If you're not a rich white person yourself, you run in circles with some rich white people. You know some rich white people. Sure. I do too. You ever known anybody to play squash? Not really rich white people. No. Me neither. So while it's funny, I'm not sure it's like, it might be more of a regional game than anything. It might be more regional. Maybe it was a bigger thing back then. I know people that play squash. It's not really reserved or even necessarily endemic for the, you know, rich white people that's more, they're they're very much more the classic golf tennis kind of thing yeah exactly golf tennis um, or their kids are playing lacrosse riding. their kids playing lacrosse is a real big thing oh gosh that, that's a good call there you go do you do you know the rules to lacrosse then you're a rich white person there you go. there's the there's the litmus test she explains the whole firm is white they hired her to keep up with the times instead um the usual black instead of the usual black cleaning woman they wanted a clean black woman with a mm. nice ass and a good vocabulary. All right, shout out to you, Jolene. You know where which, you are. Which, to be fair to this firm, we're still what? We're what, mid, late 68? This is yeah. still a pretty damn progressive firm for 68 that they're hiring black people as pe- uh, people in a professional position. So credit where it's due. And I think she's giving them credit. I really do. I, I, think, I, I don't think she's she's dismissing that. Well, I think Jolene in her own way is giving credit not only to the firm, but also giving credit to the partner of where she's mocking it to a certain degree. She's lambastic to a certain degree she's calling it a joke to a certain degree but i think she also would does intend to marry him which is a, a, a point there too yeah she says she's going to leave the second she passes the bar she says she wants what beth has great quote here potential line of the episode you've been the best at what you do for so long you don't even know what it's like for the rest of us love that quote love that perspective being thrown at beth right there <laughs> and it is so true i mean you know I, we you know, both of us, and I'm sure everyone listening here, has known someone who is effortlessly good at something that's difficult. Mm-hmm. I mean, I've, 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 you, you know these people that are effort, effortlessly good at something that's difficult. And usually those people need a reminder that what they are doing is special and different. Because usually yeah. usually those people think, oh, well, it's just, it's so easy for them. Like, it's so easy for Beth that I'm sure she doesn't even realize just how abnormal her journey is, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Beth wants to change the subject. Ask what her fellow radicals will think of her being with a rich white lawyer. Not going to be line of the episode, but one of my favorite lines of the episode. Fuck them if they can't take a joke. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I like that line. And She's great. Uh, got to Jolene and Beth outside of a trailer. I believe this is where Beth grew up. Jolene, a trailer. You really were the gold standard for white trash girls everywhere, weren't you? <laughs> can, can, we, can we just get like... 
You know how when they do movies, they have the creator then do like a commentary over the scenes afterwards? Can we get Jolene just provide commentary for the last six episodes she wasn't in? That'd be great. <laughs> She'd do a better job than this podcast, I'm sure. But... <laughs> we couldn't afford her. <laughs> no, yeah, she's out of the, out of the price range. Uh, Jolene said her mom came from money and married into more of it, but it's unclear how they wound up in a trailer. I got a theory uh, or two. I think some of the, the mental health issues probably played a part there. Sure. Cut to them showing up at Methuen which is the um, the boarding school that Beth mm-hmm. and Jolene met at, that Beth was in until it looked like she was about maybe 13 or 14. It looked like Jolene was there all the way up until adult. It looked like she was there all the way through. I don't think she ever got adopted. Sure. Um, and Beth is quiet. I just realized I don't ever want to go back in there again. This is what Beth's saying to Jolene. Cut to the funeral. Not a big turnout for Mr. Scheibel. I didn't like that at all. Did not well, like that. Well, to be fair, we also have a main character that never called him, never sent him a letter other than to ask for money, and never returned the money. So that's our frame of reference for caring for Mr. Scheibel. Man, Scheibold. you you really you really took my hand there because I've got a, I got some all cap sentences coming up. Go here on, soon on, give that it to front. me, man. Let me <laughs> let me feel the rage. Let me feel the rage. Uh, Beth says Mrs. Deerdorf isn't there. Jolene explains that Mrs. Deerdorf fell and broke her hip not long after Jolene left. Jolene quote made me almost believe in God. <laughs> Another banger right there from Jolene. Uh, Beth notes that none of the people are crying. Uh, Jolene asks if Beth is okay. I feel bad. I owed him $10. Here is where I've got some all caps. Beth, my God, you didn't pay the man back. This is of all the shit that Beth does. And, and look, Beth Harmon is our girl. All right. We got to die with Beth Harmon. But my God, this is absolutely reprehensible. It is uh, unforgivable, unfathomable. Absolutely ridiculous that she would write that man and say, look, I need 10 bucks, you know, whatever it was to get into the chess tournament. If I win, I will pay you back 20. You promised you little brat. She She said she'd pay him back. She, and then she won. It'd be one thing if she didn't win Spencer. She didn't win. You know, Mr. Scheibel probably realized, okay, I'm making a bet here, right? (laughs) It made the papers. I'm betting. So he gives her the money. Betting that she's going to win. Yeah, Beth wins. He has her. to read about it in the fucking paper and she doesn't pay him back. Absolutely yeah. unforgivable. Well, Huge, un, unreversible uh, strike against Beth there. It, it put a sour taste in my mouth with respect to Beth's journey for the rest of this episode. It's like, I had assumed that was off camera. I just assumed, like, of course, Mr. Scheibel's profound statement of love and support that started your entire career. Of course you've maintained, you paid him back. Of course you've maintained a private pen pal relationship. No, she never paid him. She never called him. She never made any effort. What? Why? Oh my God. I can't tell if that's like, is it, is it like smart person bad? You know, so some, some smart people can be like really oblivious to like social norms or is it hot girl bad? Is it just, she's so used to everybody loving her and doing what she says because she's hot that she just assumes she doesn't have to pay people back for this type of crap. Which is it, Spencer? I'm not sure because we get a lot. We get we get to see a lot of her relationships, you know, come back in this episode, but very few of them have been positive necessarily for the other person, or very equal with respect to the other person. I mean, Jolene's her best friend in the world. She never apparently sent her a letter when she was back at Methuen, or called her, or kept in touch with her. All the ver- the various people like Harry or Jojen or very else, we've seen her kind of use them for her own purposes and then basically abandon them. I think we're coming to the conclusion to a certain degree that Beth's not a very good person, honestly. A sympathetic <sighs> one, maybe, but she's got a lot of character flaws. 
Look, I ride or die with Beth Harmon, but I will not make any excuses for this. I would also like to give you a lot of credit for blowing through Methuen way more naturally than I did. That was very good, Spencer. I don't know if you caught it, but I struggled on that word. <laughs> and you just nailed it. So I good work. before the episode. <laughs> good work on that one. But you're right. I mean, Beth does some inexcusable things. And at the top of the fucking list, a bullet Mr. number Shibble. one with a star next to it is not paying Mr. Scheibel back here. I think that is... They laugh about it here, but I felt like that was really bad. Well, I feel like it... I feel like this doesn't feel very authentic or real because it's being set up for a very profound, powerful moment of filmmaking, a very yes. profound moment in the story that only works if she didn't and hasn't maintained contact with him. That they're setting up a moment here that's going to make us cry at the expense of necessarily a believable years that preceded it. Which, fine, that's a creative decision. And it does make for a very effective moment coming up. Yes. But I don't like its implications. Well. I, I have no, you've twisted my arm. You boxed me in. I'm in check. I have no choice but to yet agree with you on another point here. I'm losing on all fronts here, folks, in my effort to <laughs> try to justify time. this it's episode. A long game. I'm getting, I'm getting whooped. But Beth changes her mind, says she'd like to go back to the school. She gets out of the car, walks in. Beth looks around. It's a little different. Not a lot different. A little different. I thought they did a very good job of making it just slightly different in the way that do. I don't know if you've ever gone back to grade school after graduating. You go back to the school. It's a little different. But it's mostly the same kind of the deal. It's kind of the same deal. She sees some of the young girls singing. <clears throat> Mrs. Deerdorf walks out, tells Beth she should be in chapel. Question for you, Spencer. That scene with Mrs. Deerdorf with the busted hip turning around saying, hey, young girl, you should be in chapel. Is that Mrs. Deerdorf? Is that, first off, is it real? Did that really happen? Or is, did Beth imagine it? And two, if it happened, is Mrs. Deerdorf just fucking out of her mind or was it a joke? Because I really didn't know what to do with that scene. I interpret it as being real and a joke because otherwise it's just really weird. Because I thought there was like a 33% chance that Beth just imagined that and they expected us to realize that, but it, it's so hard because everything else in the scene is real. If that's the case, it's very poorly set up because the only clear repeated imaginings we've had are the chess, are the, are the chess pieces on the ceiling. We've had those since the get-go. But that's kind of it. And so to suddenly have just an imaginary interaction with another character here at the very end would be a very poor decision-making because, of course, the audience wouldn't understand because you've not set them up to understand. So that's very strange, yeah. I think it's real and still just kind of odd. Yeah, even if it's real, it's still weird. Beth then walks down to the basement where her and Mr. Shabble used to play so much chess. She sees the table they played on she starts to cry. Holds it in. Starts to cry. Beth, very, very male in that way. You never see a full-blown cry from Beth, right? You know, she. Mm -hmm. I feel like she, um, because it was like that stiff upper lift orphanage thing, she feels like she has to hold it in. Um, I see. I only say that because I see a, a lot of males who have the same sort of like it, it's uh, feeling, like they're the not allowed to cry type thing. I think she has some of that. Choir music plays, continues to play in the background. Love the music of the scene, even sure. if the scene itself has some problems. Then she looks up and sees a collage of old newspaper clippings of all of Beth's successes. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. Mr. Scheibel, the MVP of Beth's heart, the one that got her in the very first chess tournament she ever played in, was never paid back. Mr. Scheibel followed her career very closely the entire time. Clearly affects Beth. Affected me on first watching. I thought that was a very powerful scene. Might have got dusty-eyed, Spencer. Might have to admit that right I, now, a little dusty-eyed. No, I'm with you. This is a well-done bit of filmmaking setting this up. It is a powerful scene. It is an emotional scene. It harkens back to one of the most effective inter-character relationships the entire series has had. I have to give them absolute credit for that. As said, I got quibbles about what sets this up and what it implies, but for this particular scene, it may be my favorite scene of the episode. 
clearly affects Beth. Clearly. He probably felt like he, he but here's the thing. Um, this is a somewhat of a surprise. They, they do a good, it, it's good storytelling as a reveal, but I would venture um, to, to stay, to say that, while it probably surprised everybody on first watching the way they set it up, it shouldn't really be a surprise because, of course, Mr. Scheibel followed this girl. He, can you imagine if you did this? If you were somehow around, you know, kids, you know, like if you were a janitor or something, and you found the one kid who was smarter than all the rest, you taught him to play chess, you brought in chess experts for the person, and that person goes on to have a professional chess career, of course you would keep up with them like they're fucking LeBron James, checking box scores every night. Of course you would. Now, absolutely, but here's a question for you. If you were in Mr. Scheibel's shoes, would you have tried to contact her when she doesn't contact you? Now, see, so I would because of the type of person I am. I mean, you you know you know what type of person I'm. I'm the type of person that will just text people and be like, "Hey, how you been?" Like yeah. I just I ke- I like to keep contact with people. I didn't get the impression that Mr. Scheibel was the no. very socialized I, person. So it kind of makes sense he didn't. But me personally, of course, I would have been going to her chess tournaments. I'd be front row with one of those foam fingers. Go Beth, let's do this. I think it's absolutely in keeping with what we've seen of Mr. Scheibel's character. And in some ways, I think it makes the relationship all the more tragic because she had to be the one to contact him and keep him in. Because that's not him. He would not do that naturally. He would always be, you know, the quiet loner curmudgeon. It took her to come to him to get her to to start that relationship. And it would have taken her to come to him to keep that relationship going. But she didn't. It's a great point. Yeah, Beth, really tough here. Um, firm, firm, unreversible strike against Beth. Um, Beth gets in the car. She's got a picture of her and Mr. Scheibel, the picture we saw them take together. Uh, we it's actually delight- saw this. It's delightfully this awkward. It's delightfully stilted. I love how awkward the picture is. It's, it's very uh, awkward picture, but he kept it, kept it the entire yes. time. Looks like a 101. I think it's probably the original. Beth takes it. She cries and cries and cries. Jolene, quote, oh, honey. Did you bite off more than you can chew? She hugs her. Jolene's a great fucking friend. Uh, mm-hmm. I may say that another 10 times in this episode. She's <laughs> solid. She's Everybody needs a Jolene in your life. Uh, she consoles Beth at just the right moment, knows exactly what to say, and then they take off. Mm-hmm. Cut to a little bit more, um, I would say, funny scene, a little bit, a little bit lighter scene. Cut to Beth in her living room, and some ladies from the Christian Crusade are there telling her they want her to go public with all this pro-Jesus, anti-communism stuff they're funding her for. Um, they want her to make a statement. They want her uh, to say, hey, um, you know, I'm going to go beat these stupid Soviets, and I'm going to use the power of Jesus to do it. And they got a statement prepared to that effect. They give it to her to look over. Guess what Beth does? I have no intention of saying anything like this. Great line from Beth. Great line. <laughs> it's a great line, but it's so it's so short-sighted and stupid here. It's like, these people are willing to pay you everything you need to do this. Do the lip service. Accomplish your dream. How much are you really sacrificing here? Shout out Jojen Benny Watts. He has been telling her the whole time, just do what you have to do to get their money. But Beth... Got a lot of pride in her. Got a lot of pride. Too much. I have no intention of saying anything like this. Why? No, because it's fucking nonsense. She says, oh, oh. face. <laughs> Woo, take that, Christian Crusade. They teach you to come around these parts again. They start bemoaning all the money they've given her. Beth says, okay, you're not going to hold that shit over me. Okay, fine. I'll give it all back. She goes to her checkbook and hands them a check. So, Which is further screwing her over. Absolutely. You know what this is? This is doubling down on a bad bet. This is making a mistake. And then saying, fuck it, I'm going to the rails anyway. And get to give them a, you didn't, look, you could have just refused future money. Yeah. 
You didn't have to give them back payment for everything they've given you already. That was a dumb move on Beth's part. It's in keeping with what we've seen Beth do when she's confronted by a problem that she can't solve or confronted by people that she just wants to go on. She pays them off. It's like she did with her dad. It's like he's obviously trying to screw her out of the house and deal. She just pays him whatever he asks for so he leaves. This is what she does to fix the problems, but she doesn't have enough money to do this. It, Not really, no. It rapidly puts her in a situation that she can't really get out of now because now she can't afford to pay it herself and she's screwed over the only, pe- per- the only person that she'd set up to pay for her. Now she has to try to scramble to find an alternative. Cut to her phone with Jojen Reed, Benny Watts. Oh, quote, well, now it's official. You're out of your fucking mind, Benny, speaking for all the rest of us. Mm. She then says... That may be true, but it's over now. She's already done. She gives a brief overview of her finances. They're not in good shape, Spencer. Don't have to be a CFO to know that. And starts to ask Benny for the money, but he very curtly says he doesn't have it. I took that to mean he does have it. He is not giving it. He doesn't have uh, it I for do her. Not blame him. I do not blame him at all for this. At no. all. If I was Benny, I would not give her the money either. Um, he tells her to get it from the Federation or the State Department. State Department is actually a pretty good idea. Um, very good idea. I remember idea. the first time I was, I was going through that, I was like, huh, that's a... That's an astute suggestion there. It doesn't feel like the type of thing you can do in a hurry, though. And that's no. what runs Beth into trouble. No, it no. does seem like the thing that might have worked out if she'd had a little foresight. No, if she'd called the State Department like a couple months ago, they could have made this a national thing. You know, yep. Henry Kissinger would have been called. It's too early for Kissinger in this. But, you know, the state, the head of the, the Secretary of State before Kissinger would have called her and helped coordinate this shit and made it a U.S. versus USR thing. You wait to the eleventh hour. Government bureaucracy does not work quickly ever, particularly when you're calling a, a mid-level bureaucrat to ask for that favor. Who's JFK's Secretary of State? Uh, actually, this would be LBJ during this period, I think. But uh, I'm not sure. Let me see. Because they say, they say afterwards the president's from Texas, so it gives me a hint. Dean Rusk. Yeah, he was the Secretary of State. Until 1969, so he was he was under Lyndon Johnson as well. He would have been the so she would have been flying with Dean Rusk. That's who it is. Okay, Dean. I'm sure Dean Rusk would have had her back. He would have made this a big deal. Would have been a great giving the Soviets a black eye moment. But nope, nope. Beth waited till the last possible minute to ask. She says the Federation doesn't like her. I wonder why that is, Spencer. She keeps pushing. She says she doesn't want to go to Russia by herself. Mini exhale. This was a great moment from the this actor who plays Jojen Reed. I. Liked him in Game of Thrones. I think he has just gotten better and better over time. And this guy like needs to be in some good shit because he has a moment here where she's pushing the issue. This sort of like, oh, Benny, like we're friends. We're still attached. Why don't you come with me? And he exhales. And in the moment, here's what I took from that exhale. It was, I didn't want to have to do this, but now I got to do it. I did not want to level with you about where my head is at. But here it comes. And he levels with her. Quote, are you kidding me? First, you don't come back to New York and you basically tell me you'd rather be a drunk than be with me. Now you pull this crap? No, you can fucking go alone. Uh, Beth posits that maybe she didn't have to give it all back. But he says, that's loser's words. <laughs> You're being, this is, I, I feel like that was good writing. That was like, a, that was like just. Benny's mentality in life. Like, hey, if you're going to do something, just fucking own it. Like, don't don't sit here and whine about it later. Yeah. And then he says, don't call me anymore and a click them. Click them, Spencer. And, you know, honestly, in this moment, as rough as it is for our girl Beth, as rough as it is for our hero, I'm kind of with Benny on this. She's kind of real. She's never, she's never really been fair or reasonable to him, and particularly not with how they ended up. 
Uh, 100% with you there, Spencer. I think Benny is in the right here. And Beth needs to do a little bit of um, uh, making amends here with Benny. She needs to come back and and say she's sorry to him. Of course, she doesn't do it. And of course, Benny shows up anyway, because that's what happens with very super talented, enigmatic, attractive people, because that's the life they live. Cut to Beth being told to the Chess Federation that they could spare $400. Wow, 400 whole dollars to send him to the Soviet Union. You know, you know, I was a little bit caught off guard by this. It's like the, the Chess Federation knows this is happening. The Chess Federation's probably helped coordinate this. You think they would have a stipend that was ready to go because they've supported a variety of people that competed in these tournaments in the past. But at least on the show, the Chess Federation apparently is all kinds of broke or all kinds of does not give a shit about Beth. Did you catch the reason why they couldn't give her the money? Uh, in, was, in, was insufficient magazine sales or something? I they rely on, yeah, they rely on the magazine sales. And Beth stole the magazine. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was pretty good. Uh, so then we get a montage of her and Jolene playing squash during the interspersed with the squash plane, it looks a lot like handball to me, but have, have no, you racquetball? Pl- have you ever played squash? Never played squash. I'm taking you to play squash at some point. Uh, it can be a lot of fun. It is very much a mix between like handball or racquetball played in a confined space. And it seems like these two are having a blast being mutually bad at it, which is also a lot of fun to do too. I will take you up on that. Unlike your, um, your offer to take me scuba diving, which I will never do, I will play squash with you. Uh, then she talks to the State Department. She does call the State Department. Again, I thought it was a good idea. I think it's something you got to plan a little bit. And surprise, surprise, they keep her on hold for a very long time before coming back and saying, we simply can't do it. And I think he's. T- I think it's a caveated no. It's a It's a no because of the process, right? right. Like, it, like it is with all government funding. I mean, it, it, you have to follow a process with if you're going to want taxpayer money. It's a no, we can't pay for it. But yes, we can support you in other ways that don't require us to have, you know, free cash on hand. We're sending somebody with you who is totally not in the CIA. Um, but yeah. we can't actually <laughs> afford to pay for your trip because that requires requisitioning and more than an hour notice. Thank you. Yeah, that's exactly that's exactly the the message. So she is getting somebody to go with her to quote keep her safe. Cut to Jolene and Beth. Beth is talking about how she can't afford to go to Moscow. And then here we go. This again. This is what happens, Spencer, when you are talented, enigmatic, attractive, and otherwise wanted by people. Life. Yep, you and I will never live this life. But Beth <laughs> certainly has. What happens? Someone comes in to save the day. It's Jolene. She says she'll give it to her. What? Beth demurs. But Jolene says she can pay her back when she wins. Well, her credit's pretty poor on that fucking front. She already tried that with Mr. Scheibel, never paid him back, uh, I'd like to point out. And it, this is also Jolene throwing down, like, you know, the equ- modern equivalent of, like, 30000 bucks or something, too. Money, this is yeah. not small. This is not petty cash. Yeah, it's a lot of money. And she's been saving it for law school, and she's willing to give it to Beth. And, you know... You know, the money's at risk because, one, Beth might not win. But, two, Beth has proven that, like Chris pointed out, she may not pay her back even if she wins. But Jolene seems to not care. (laughs) Jolene seems to not care. She says, I'm going to give you the money, Beth. Quote, you're my guardian angel. Jolene, hey, Beth, fuck you. Which I, you know, I think a lot of people probably at that initial, hey, Beth, fuck you, were jarred by that. I was not. When I'm doing something for a friend, somebody I care about, don't, don't dismiss me by saying you're my guardian. That's a dismissive thing to say to Jolene. No, she's your friend. That's what she is. And that's, that's bigger. That's better. Like, and, and, and it's something that's rooted in, in, in shared history um, and, and concern. 
And it's it's moments like this, and also the effort they've made in this episode and earlier to give Jolene a bit of her own background, a bit of her own character, which seems to be almost aggressively saying that this character, pardon the term, it's a bit of a loaded term, but this character is not the magical Negro. This is not this is not the character that exists solely to help the help help the, the main white character fulfill her story. It's really damn close, but this seems almost to be aggressively saying, no, I'm getting something out of this too. We're family. I've been following you just like Mr. Scheibel did all of this time. This isn't just because I have the sole purpose of swooping down to save the day at the last second. It looks a little like that, but it seems to be almost aggressively saying that it isn't. It's a good point. And this, and this, you know, um, this monologue here from Jolene establishes that, right? Hey, Beth, fuck you. Scheibel isn't the only one who kept after you all these years. I know how you lost to Benny Watts in Vegas, then beat him in Ohio. She goes on to explain that she was still in the orphanage. She spent her ice cream money on chess magazines, of all things, to keep tabs on Beth. Moral of the story, Beth. More people love and follow and care about you than you realize. Mm-hmm. Quote, I'm not your guardian angel. I'm not here to save you. Hell, I can barely save me. I'm here because you need me to be here. That's what family does. That's what we are. Someday I might need you. It's doubtful, but you never know. Great quote. I'm going to nominate that for the line of the episode as well. Yeah, that's a really good line. I like that one quite a bit. Uh, we cut to Beth on the plane. One of her state department guards has a flask. Ask her if she wants any. Beth hesitates, hesitate, beat, beat. As long as you can comfortably go in polite society without answering a question and then says no. (laughs) He then goes on to explain the rules, which are basically uh, don't go anywhere and don't drink. Apparently, the drink offer was a test. Do you think it was really a test? No, no. I think he was covering for himself there after the fact. I think so, too. He says if Borgoff gives her a signal, then to let him know. He says he's heard Borgoff may want to talk. This perplexes Beth. So, um... Uh, question for you, Spencer. Does that prove that this guy was in the CIA? Uh, it provides, in my mind, further evidence for it. And I think, in large part, he's here not only to, you know, watch and protect her, but also to ensure that she doesn't defect. Yeah, I felt like, you know, the uh, the idea that Borgov might defect would have been great for, um, you know, the U.S. Yeah, stuff. yeah. It, there, there, there would be massive political coup points from that happening. Um Odds of it. <laughs> Again, it doesn't seem like they've invested much into this. It's like they, they've they sent a guy and they're hoping that she'll work into their existing plans, but they've not really put much either political, emotional, or particularly real capital into making this a thing. Yeah. Um, cut to them getting a car at the airport. Beth notices the taxi driver has a gun. Then we get a montage of 1960s Moscow. Pretty sweet looking. I mean, there's some yeah. cool looking buildings. Yeah. Beth then arrives at the hotel. We get the obligatory... Um, it's not an episode of Queen's Gambit if we don't get the scene of Beth dramatically walking, walking into, into a hell. hotel with some luggage. That's what we got. <laughs> Is this the fifth time we've gotten that now? It's really the most repeated motif in the entire show. <laughs> it's all the time with the with the with some iteration of the theme playing in the background. Beth gets to her room. It's pretty sweet. Big room. Sweet. Um, see what I did there? Then we get some dramatic string music as she settles into her hotel. Very Russian. Uh, Beth, this will do nicely. Mm-hmm. Which is a repeated line we got from her mom, which I like that reference. And now we are starting to get to the coup de grace, Spencer, what we've all been waiting for. The showdown, the, I think it's round three of Beth, uh, potentially Beth v. Borgov. It's mm-hmm. Beth in Moscow. She's the U.S. champion. She's representing America. She's on their turf. She's playing their game. Let's see how it goes. Cut to radio commenters talking about the upcoming tournament. Beth gets introduced, walks in, in a striking White and black. What'd you think of that white and black dress she walks in on on day one? 
I think I thought it was a lovely dress, and I love basically that it is a chess dress in terms of the white and the black. It, it, it's, a, it's a good look. It's a good and appropriate look. Yeah, I thought it was a very good look. In this montage, Borgov is definitely, definitely taking notice of Beth. Mm-hmm. Um, he does not seem to me to be of the, hey, hot girl walks by, let's check her behind out as she walks type of guy. I don't think it's that type of looking. No, I don't think no. it's that type of noticing. I think Borgov knows she's got a lot of talent, and he wants to keep tabs on her. Mm-hmm. Um, Luchenko is it gets announced. He's a sweet old man with a great fro. Another really good side character here we get for a few minutes. He's love very, Luchenko. He's, he's very brief, but I love his introduction to the show. They they really with a, quite a bit of economy develop a fascinating back a back character that we don't need to see much more of, but love the moments we see. There's live music at this tournament. Of course. Um, so it just goes to show you what kind of event it is. Borgoff gets introduced last, like a prize fighter. Mm. You know, like the heavyweight champion of the world comes mm-hmm. in at the very last. Uh, that's him. An English commenter says they are all aren't taking her very seriously. I don't know if this is true. Bullshit. I don't know Bullshit. if this is true or if this is like, you know, this sort of like, hey, you know, like the, the narrative that might play well to an English audience, you know. Of well, they're not they're not taking the the Westerner seriously here. Um, Lave L A E V is her first opponent, and she gives him a twenty seven move whooping, slaughters him. Yep, thank you for your service, boy. Get on out of here. That evening, Beth walks outside to her car, and there are fans waiting. She's got a few fans. I think it's probably like ten when she first starts, right? Yeah, yeah, it built, it built. She goes to a weird dinner where she's eating some soup that she doesn't like. Struggle is real, Beth. Right there with you. Don't like the soup either. Uh, followers, of, <laughs> followers of the channel will know. Uh, I'm not a big soup fan. Right there with my girl. I Beth am taking you on a soup tour. Just all nothing but soup for a week. You're you're, you're gonna endure it. and You're gonna love it. <laughs> I've now I've now referenced my dislike of soup across every single pod on this <laughs> that channel. That has been your repeated motif. <laughs> uh, everyone around is drinking. She is not. Borgoff is at the dinner. But it very much looks like she is resisting the temptation to drink, to participate in the frivolity, Spencer. Uh, she's there to eat, do her business, cut to the next day. Beth is playing a guy, looking very much bored and very much in control. Um, I'm going to do the move for you. You can see me on the camera. I will try to describe it. This is the um, Beth is bored cue to the audience. It is elbows on the table. Hands folded over, chin on top of the hands. When she gives you that look, mm-hmm. you're dead. You're, yeah. It's over. Um, cut to Beth walking in the park. She notices at the park like 20 tables. These are these are not chessboards. Mm-hmm. These are tables with like just slats across the top that I guess have enough like enough slats that they can actually kind of sort of make a chess table like a chessboard out of it. Yeah, very impromptu kind of thing it looks like. Yeah, it's really cool. It's like the type of thing you see in Central Park where yes. you know you see like a bunch of old guys, um, people in a lot of flannel with a lot of like <laughs> a lot of, a lot of flannel, a yeah. lot of beanies, a lot of a lot of um, uh, gloves with the fingers cut out of them kind of mm-hmm. look. those That type of look, uh, sitting there playing chess. They have that apparently in Moscow. Beth sees it um, and cuts Beth winning again. She walks out of the room. I will, at this point, I'm starting to see the swagger. I'm starting to see the the shoulders cock back and forth. The as confidence she walks. She's is coming feeling back. feeling good about herself. She's whooping these guys. And Borgoff, you'll notice, Gets up, goes over to her board when she's done to study it, and Beth sees that. Spencer. 
Is that Beth Harmon's music? Our girl is back. She's already got Borgov shook. I was fired up at this point. I know this probably didn't quite get you um, as riled up and emotional uh, as, as maybe you could. But the first time I watched this, when I saw that, I thought, oh, shit. Oh, shit. She's already in his head. Already mm-hmm. in his head. Cut to English announcer again. He explains that Beth's matches against Hellstrom and Sheetkin were rigorous, grim affairs, mm. but were probably pretty exhausting. Uh, but she was strong and they both resigned. So a couple of things here I want to point out. You know, obviously, you know, she's she's making her way through the NCAA tournament, right? She's sure. moving Sweet 16, Elite 8, Final Four. She's blowing through the bracket. It doesn't at all seem like the type of chess tournament that you have so diligently and professionally researched on this channel. There's no, There seems to be no draws and only one match. Yeah, and are, are they all... I'm really confused how this chess tournament works because it looks like the people that she defeats or plays are still playing other people around her. So is this a point-based system? Are they playing everybody in the room? Or is it single elimination and they're just hanging out? I don't know. They don't really make it much of an effort to explain the particular rules of this tournament. Yeah, it's weird. And, you know, I guess, you know, I guess having her draw matches just wouldn't be very dramatic, but... I mean, does she, I, does she ever draw a match in this entire show? No, it's it's almost as if chess is just like, like a like I don't know, like a game of basketball or something. You know, which like, is weird. Like there has to be a winner. There can't be a draw. Most matches are drawn. I'll get to, and I'm describing it on, on uh, my Wikipedia spiral. So, it's, I understand that drawing isn't particularly dramatic, and they kind of dismiss it at several points, both in this episode and otherwise, but. That's really mostly how it's played. It's played. It's it's a very strategic element of the game, particularly in tournaments where you're playing somebody like you know twenty times or whatever else. Hellstrom took it rather hard. Didn't speak to Beth a- afterwards. We again get a shot of Beth strolling out of the room, strutting, high flying, <laughs> jet flying, <laughs> kiss stealing, wheeling dealing. Beth Harmon, my friends. Man, you are emceeing her in this episode. She needs you there to start start speaking for. Woo! Shapkin was nicer about it, um, but Beth also kicked his ass. So I mean, you know, she's just handed out ass whippings everywhere. Cut to Beth in a very beautiful hotel restaurant where it looks to me. Tell me if I'm wrong here, Spencer. Looks to me like she's having breakfast, and it looks to me like they have some kid rolling around a cart with vodka. Is that what you saw? That's what I saw. That's <laughs> what I saw, and I I, I interpret. It's Russia, so that probably is just a thing. But I almost interpreted that scene as being the KGB going, get her drunk, get her drunk, get the cart near her. That's what, yeah, because there were military guys then looking at her and cheersing her. So I thought the yes. same thing. I thought they had some intel that, like, if you can get <laughs> no, her drunk, it, it'll be It there. is Russia. It is Russia. Yeah, so it could just be breakfast. It's hard to, hard to say. Um, Beth says no. She still says no. Um, cut to Beth in the hotel room where she's preparing for sleep like a normal, sober person. So at this point, she's firmly within the rails. Our girl is on focus, Spencer. Mm-hmm. She's on focus. Cut to the big match the next day with Ruchinko. He's the oldest player there. Uh, got a huge resume. Big oh, old yeah. long resume. Of, of so defeating real-life chess players, too. He was a world champion before Harmon was born. Um, do you want to talk about uh, how they introduced him, who, the, who, he, who he beat? I mean, I think they list uh, David Bronstein, who was a previous, was, was one of the Soviet greats. Uh, that he, I don't remember what, what they, they say he played David Bronstein, Mikhail Botvinnik, and uh, Alexander Al- Al- Alekhine, who were world champions, some of the best champions in the world in real life. This is interesting to have very much modern players that were alive at this moment in time, or around at this moment in time and a little before, 
suddenly be named as, as, as if they're existing in this world. It's kind of... We've previously had they only were discussing dead players. Now we're discussing players that were greats at the time the show is set that existed in our world, too. It's kind of, it kind of messed with my mind a little bit. Suddenly, like, oh, previously everyone that you introduce as being in this world is fictional because the present world is fictional. But now you're basically saying that real-life greats are also just existing off-camera. Yeah, it was very strange to, to intersperse that. I, I also thought it was interesting... Um, that Luchenko was a legitimately old guy. Up mm-hmm. until now in the show, Jess, Chess has been kind of portrayed as a young person's uh, young person, game. Yeah. I mean, um, really, Borgoff's been kind of like the oldest player. And they've even yeah. been asking him, don't you feel you're kind of too old for this now? Yeah, and Luchenko's got like at least 15 years on him. Yeah. Um, great music is playing while they dual cut again to Beth, leaving to get into a car. And they are chanting her name, Spencer. Shades Build of Rocky Balboa, Spencer. Shades crowd. of Rocky Four, Spencer. If I can change and you can change, we all can change, Spencer. That's what I have to say. Rocky Beth Four is Harmon, a fair USA USA. Rocky Four is a surprisingly apt comparison to this episode in a lot of ways. <laughs> surprisingly oh my apt. God. Just Beth at the Beth hanging over a chessboard with a bloody lip. If I can change, <laughs> and you can change. <laughs> hey, we didn't see Borgoff's training regime. It's perfectly possible that man's just breaking uh, breaking pound indicators on the off screen. <laughs> He's getting interviewed. She dies. She dies. Uh, cut to Beth I walking into break. the hotel room. I would have loved if Borgoff walked up to their game and said, I must break you and, and sit down. <laughs> cut to Beth walking into her hotel room. The hotel is huge. Her, um, not, she's walking to her to her hotel room, and she's in this like almost like Alice in Wonderland type hallway. I was wondering, like, is this what fucking hotel rooms look like in Moscow? The huge vaulted ceilings and really big doors. I thought it was cool. Sure. Um, before she goes in her room, she sees Luchinko working with Borgov, helping during the adjournment. Russians helping during the adjournment. Other. Just like Benny Watts told her, shout out Jojen Reed, told her the truth. Um, she knows it now. Um, we get a great shot from outside the hotel kind of looking in the window where, where the camera's outside the hotel she's, they're spawning a floor a lot of open windows and inside you can see all these people preparing mm-hmm. all the people preparing for the tournament um, we get back to the Luchinko Harmon game Beth is doing the chin on hand stare at the opponent thing which tells me there's blood in the water blood in the mm-hmm. water uh, eventually Beth plays and Luchinko starts to hesitate and smile we hear that she beats him with 25 minutes left on the clock. Quote, excellent. What a brilliant recovery. I resign with relief. What a classy guy. That what a class go. act. And it, it's notable that a lot of a lot of the lead chess players in the world have watched the series and really enjoy the chess games. This game, before all, they all agree, is the best game the series does. It's just a game of chess depicted. It's just, they love the moves, they love the strategy, they love the image of the board. This is, this is all of the chess greats' favorites. Yep. Uh, Beth, quote, I've played your game since I was a small girl. I've always really admired you. Uh, Luchinko, how old are you again? No, no, don't tell me. It will only drive a stake through my heart. I went, over your, I went over your games at the tournament. Potential line of the episode right here. You are a marvel, my dear. Mm-hmm. I may have just played the best chess player of my life. Wonderful line. Wonderful movement. Wonderful character that they introduce in a one-off way here. Yeah, great. Cut to Beth walking out of the tournament to the car. Even more people are there this time, cheering for her, hard for her to get through the crowd. Beth is becoming a bit of a, a, a 
kind of like a, a cultural phenomenon here. People are rallying to Beth's cause. This is very Rocky IV. They're chanting Beth's name, Harman, Harman outside. These are Russians chanting her name, Spencer. It's kind of awesome. Beth's next match goes on for a very long time. It's clearly against an inferior opponent, but it's taking Beth a long time to beat him. She finally gets him to resign that night. Beth goes back to her hotel room. She has a flashback to her mom. It's the day they were driving. Quote, it's just a problem I've got to solve. Quote, what problem? What I do with you? I think her mom was trying to place Beth somewhere before she killed her. Then the scene continues. This is the real tough yes. part. From Beth, mama. And then from the mother, quote, close your eyes. So I think I think what we're meant to believe here is that, I don't know what was going on in her mother's mind, but apparently she landed on, I guess I'll just kill us both. I wonder how impromptu this was. I felt, I felt like this was a woman that was being pushed into the rope and not having, not being able to see any other way out. She, there in that car, in that moment, saw a way to solve the equation from her perspective. I don't yeah. think this was planned. Nope. Then we cut to Beth dropping her pills down the toilet. I guess that flashback was a trigger for Beth, and she's like, you know, I can't keep these pills around. I'm just, I'm just going to take them. Um, the next day, <clears throat> the next day, Beth walks in. There is one count of one, one, one table set up, ladies and gentlemen, for the heavyweight championship of the world. Let's get it ready to rumble. It's Beth versus Borgov round three. Mm -hmm. With a sober and prepared Beth, this is what we've been waiting for, Spencer. We've been waiting to see can a sober, prepared Beth beat Borgov? We're going to see. The radio commenters are covering this one tight. Reading out every move, we hear that both of the players are significantly deviating from how they normally play. I thought that was an interesting... Trying to mess with each other. Yeah, exactly. They know that they've studied each other, so they're kind of throwing out weird stuff. Um, we see that after every move, they're calling it out to the crowd outside. And like, and I don't know if you noticed in the crowd, like, like a bunch of people have like their own chessboard. Where yeah, like move little pieces the around. Pieces to follow it. That was, that yeah. was a pretty cool thing. Um, seems like the whole country stopped. This is like the World Cup for, for Moscow. It's a big deal. Um and it, it looks like they're really battling here. It's interesting how they showed you the chessboard because, I mean, I'm, you know, I know a little bit about chess. It does not appear that anybody has the upper hand. No. It seems a pretty balanced affair. Lot. Yeah, yeah. There's no real progression on either side from white or black. Um, as they are playing, Borgov abruptly calls for an adjourn. Uh, Spencer, can you do that? Because it seemed to surprise Beth. <sighs> There are a lot of different rules that go into effect for particular tournaments about the ability of players for different reasons to stop play or even postpone play. It's It catches Beth off guard, but it doesn't seem like he's violating the rules. It seems like he's allowed to, at a certain point, say, enough for tonight. Um, do, I think you normally have to do like a set number of moves or a set amount of time for that to happen, but I guess that's just not how it's working here. Weird. It does seem to catch Beth off guard, though. Borgov, right? We covered this in a previous episode. When there's an adjournment and it's your move, you write your move down. That goes with someone else. So that way, you've locked in your move, and the person you're playing knows you have a move coming, but they don't know what it is. So both of you, in effect, can't really prepare. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> um, the State Department guy is telling her that, like every pub major publication in the world, wants to talk to her. Quote, you're bigger than the monkeys. Uh, <laughs> the monkeys? That, that's what, that's, okay. He's a monkeys uh, fan. Come on. Don't, don't, don't uh, condemn his choice in music. <laughs> the monkeys? Like, what? Okay. All right. I guess so. Um, 
from Beth, quote, please, I just want to go to sleep. He tells her it would be really good to talk to them. Spread around a little anti-Russia, pro-America cheer. Beth gives him a look, uh, but reluctantly agrees. Mm-hmm. They ask her how she learned to play chess. And uh, uh, <clears throat> ladies and gentlemen, I have a story to tell. She tells him about Scheibel. Big shout out there to Scheibel. Tells him mm-hmm. um, that they better promise to print it, which they do. I think they're probably going to print it this time. What, she goes to leave. What, and what, who does she hear? What, just a, a pointed reason that she says they better promise to print it was because she told the story before to Life magazine when she was a kid and they didn't yep. print it. So didn't, good, good yep. hearkening back. Yep. This time, uh, that, that's, yeah, that, I should have clarified, but that's what I meant by this time. I think they're really going to print it. Yeah. Um, who do we hear, Spencer? Is that Towns music? Towns is back. Towns is back. Did you expect to see Towns again? I didn't know what to expect, honestly, for a lot of the reunions we got in this episode, but I, I entertained that it was possible in some shape or form. <laughs> And if you're detecting a note of detachment, that is Spencer starting to mentally check out from the episode. I'm, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's starting <laughs> to happen hard here from, my, from here on out. He is not appreciative of all of the, all of the, the comebacks, uh, all of the, the wrestling entrances that we have here at the end of this episode. Mm-hmm. Um, Spencer, do you think it's a good thing that like, all right, so try to, try to come back with me. So Towns is here. <laughs> Towns is here. <gasps> Is this really good for Beth? If you are, if you're pulling the, if you're the puppet master here for Beth and you're trying to create the very best situation possible for her, would you really introduce Towns into the mix? And he introduces the possibility that the Russians purposely arranged for him to be able to get, able to get there so quick, just so it would mess with her. Mm -hmm. Because he's a destabilizing entity and they had a prior poor leaving moment. Yeah, I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot of that. Because she, you know, Towns explains he got a visa quickly because yeah, maybe Moscow thinks it'd be bad for you that I'm here. Mm-hmm. Beth, quote, if they only knew, that opens up the conversation that happened all those many moons back in that Las Vegas hotel room when Beth thought her and Towns were about to go at it. And what's his name? That asshole who messes up everything? Greg. Anyway, Greg. <laughs> Greg came in, ruined everything. Towns apologizes for leading her on. Um, so they don't express you know, say it explicitly here, but, but Towns, Towns is gay. And well, it's the <clears> only <throat> time I've ever had, I, I don't think I've ever seen in any form of media, a gay character explained to a straight character that, sorry, when I came on to you, I was confused. I've never seen that reversal of that all too common trope done the other way. Yeah, that's a very good point. And it uh, probably happens a lot. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't think that's unrealistic. No, no. I don't think I've ever really seen it done from that perspective before. He does back off and give her one of these. You really are something. So I don't know. You know, whatever. Makes Beth feel good. <clears throat> they forgive each other. Share a moment. Towns asks, what can I do to help you win? She says she needs pills and booze. <laughs> what can I do for you? Well, how can I help you, Beth? Well, I need to get fucked up. I can't do that. That's the one thing. What else can I do? Uh, she points out that she needs her mind to be cloudy in order to win. Towns doesn't believe that shit for a moment, nor do I, Spencer. Nor does everyone. It doesn't yeah. make any sense what she's saying. Well, is doesn't it to a certain degree? It's how she's played chess. It's how she's learned how to play chess. It's every element of her understanding of the game of chess before the present moment. Yeah, but when she got fucked up, she got killed by Borgoff. And she has waltzed her way through the bracket, not fucked up this time. So we got a little bit of evidence that maybe not getting fucked up is somewhat good for Beth. And that's what Beth, that's what he calls out. He says, look, you've been killing it without all that stuff. Sure. Beth admit, admits that she asked the front desk where she could get more. This is a real addict right here. Mm. Where you put, you pour the pills out and an hour later you're down the front desk. Hey, uh, you know, just deliver them. You know, can you, 
you know, because in Mexico you can buy it across the yeah. The I, I don't can need it, one. Here, is this like Mexico? Right? <laughs> yeah. Also, can, do you want? Do you, do you want? A, you know, a, a signature. Asking for a, a signature. Yeah. You know, I'm really depressed. Uh, cut to the park outside with the old men setting up chess boards. Uh, they're just playing on tables. They're yeah. not even chess boards. It's such a such a cool. Th- thing that they established there in the outside uh, with those old men playing chess in the park. Next morning, Towns wakes Beth up with coffee. What a guy! Apparently she slept late. The found rings. Towns, quote, yes, put them through. Quote, you all there? I'll put her on. Wait for it, wait for it. Is that Benny Watts' music? That's Is right, that ladies and gentlemen. everyone's music? <laughs> Benny Watts, Harry's back, Beltic is back, all of the crew, they're sitting there. White knight situation. <clears throat> See what I did there? White knight situation. Yes. They come to try to save the day for Beth. Um, I'll just explain what they're doing, and then I'll, I'll go to you to completely rip the rip the scene apart. So... Um, he, he, he starts with, if he goes for the night, hit him with the rook pawn. Best overcome. Benny's firing out of vice. Um, she says, how do you know about the board? He says, well, it's printed in the Times. That's pretty funny that overnight they printed the board in the Times. He says it's 7 a.m. there, but they've been working on it for three hours. That's right, ladies and gentlemen, all these people that Beth thought don't like her anymore, that you know, through all of her faults, they've left her behind. No, they haven't, Beth. It's adjournment time. The U.S. is going to stick up for you just like how Luchinko is sticking up for Borgoff. We're here with you. Uh, and they talk and they they try to help her out with strategy and Beth is overcome and really excited. Okay, cut to Spencer. What'd you think of this scene? I thought it was heartfelt and the the actors do a very good job with it in terms of presenting it as a very emotional moment. Particularly Anna Taylor-Joy does great with the scene. Uh, Anya, I, I, I've said her name wrong the entirety of this series. <laughs> Yeah, I don't um, know what it is. Yeah. I'll, we'll look at it in a second. Um, Anna, Anya, something like that. Taylor Joy. Sure. Um, it is smolchy as shit. <laughs> it is utterly saccharine. It is... Kleenex moment of the series. It is, Niagara Falls, ladies and gentlemen. No, it didn't, it didn't have that effect on me at all. I just kind of sighed and leaned back in my chair. This was almost like the anime sports moment of where suddenly at the last hour, everyone rallies behind the main character to give them the power of heart to succeed. And it's like... Okay, fine. It's a trope. You're playing. I, I I now understood at this moment that this show was not going to push any boundaries. It was going for the heartwarming factor, and that's all it wanted to do. All the problems, all the demons, all the character conflict, all of those are gone. We're banishing those out. away. Get your ribbon out, Spencer. We're putting a bow on all of it. <laughs> yeah, we are done with all of that. That's not what this show is really about. We're here to give you a happy, heartwarming ending at the end of where everything works out great and all of the problems we've spent six episodes previously building up and indicating and portraying very authentically of honest-to-God problems with her character. None of those are actually going to play out. Everyone's going to come together here, whether it's earned or not, whether it even necessarily feels real or not, so that we can have a happy ending. And I, I understand it. I think a lot of people needed it. And I get it, and it is it is heartwarming, but it took me out of it. Question for you, Spencer. <clears throat> when we watch The Rise of Skywalker, there's a scene where, um, what's his nuts? The bad guy, Ben Solo. Um, he has a vision of his dead father, Han Solo, talking to him. And they actually bring Harris, they trot 73-year-old Harrison Ford back out onto screen for this flashback. And you and I in the theater were watching this 
and you did a two-part move. It's the go back in your chair and hop. <laughs> You've seen this before. <laughs> I was that the same move you got move. here? The back and huff? It was a very much a back and a huff. Maybe even a double back and a huff. Where I lean back forward to see, like, oh, is that guy there too? <sighs> yeah, well, you know, this is a scene I had, obviously had in mind when I kept harping in previous episodes of Mangum Talks TV about how, you know, when one wins and moves on to the next, yes, the yes, defeated yes. help her. And that's what they're doing here. I actually like the scene, but I like hokey stuff. I like it when it when it all kind of works out. Man. So it made me made me feel good inside. Um, it is very clearly in response to what Benny said before was the problem of Americans, the needing to come together and win. It is hearkening back to that. I'm my bigger complaint is whether it is an, an emotional moment that is purely earned, given the actual character interactions we've had coming up into this moment. Yeah. Which, given that the series ends here, we never really get to see. Beth really go through the process of actually earning what are really great friendships that she's now had or now developed, apparently, off camera, leading up to this moment. Yeah, they're all talking over each other, and Beth is tearing up. Then Betty puts an end to the emotion, tells everyone the call's costing him a fortune. Damn it, be quiet. Beth needs to listen. Apparently, they've been gaming out the board. They've got four different scenarios for her. She takes up a pen and pad. She starts to listen. So, you know, they're giving her good stuff here, apparently. As the guys talk, we get a montage of Beth studying working through the board with Towns. Then on her way to the match, she gets out of the car. She's walking through the crowd to go up to finish her match with Borgoff. What does she hear? Harman. Harman. She's taking things over. Cut to the match. They get going. The theme music of the show plays. Each move is carefully done by each player. The piano theme plays in the background and there's a driving string rhythm pushing the piece forward. Borgov is looking more and more frustrated. I like the actor who played Borgov. He's, I think he did a good he is job very well. role. Yes. Because he starts to, he looks like he's having that inner turmoil. That that inner frustration, that desperation mm-hmm. that Benny and Beth talk about when they were losing. He he seems to play it out. You see him like, it, it's, not, it's not external facing, right? He's not mad at Beth. He's not mad at anything. He's mad at himself at every move mm-hmm. and what's happening. He eventually just, I don't know if you caught it, he gets to a point where he just moves a pawn back one, or no, forward one. Mm-hmm. He just moves one pawn, one oh, forward one, and then sits down and kind of stares down into nothing. It's like that, that like classic, like, I have no idea what to do here. Fuck it. I'm just going to move this pawn <laughs> I need up time. One. I need time This to thing think. that's completely out of the action, I'm just yeah. moving it up a one. <laughs> um, Beth, uh, when he does this, Beth stops, mouth agape, looks at him. I think this is the part where she finally realizes she might win. Towns in the audience whispers to himself, shit, he's not supposed to, he's not doing what he's supposed to do. Beth takes a deep breath, recenters herself, looks at the board, looks at Borgoff, looks at the ceiling, and she sees the Spencer, sees Spencer, she sees the uh, the pieces. She yeah. sees the pieces so pieces are there. Borgov, yeah, <laughs> catch the tone, everybody. This is there. Spencer's out at this point. I'll, I'll, I'll finish out the with enthusiasm. Borgov even looks up to see what she's looking at, and this is the moment I think when we all know we're getting that happy ending. Beth is going to win. Beth goes back to the board. She moves. We see Borgov start to play more defense. He's backing his pieces up, repeating some moves. He looks frustrated. Looks up to her. Says, "Draw." The radio announcer clues us into the fact that Borgov never offers a draw, which I'd like to pause in the recap. And I'd like to make up this point. If you are, if you're a chess player, you really don't need to adopt the strategy that you never offer a draw. Because if you do, every time you offer a draw, 
<clears throat> your opponent no. will know that you're beat. Like, why wouldn't he occasionally just offer a draw just so he doesn't have the rap of somebody who, when he says draw, knows that he's beat, right? And it's not even in keeping with the Russian school. I mean, like, one of the things I pointed out last episode, Bobby Fischer complained about the fact is that Russians would always draw all the damn time, particularly when they were playing each other. Or if they got a slight lead, they'd draw nonstop so they could pres- preserve yeah. that lead. Mm-hmm. It's strategic. Four yeah. Four, four corners defense, or offense. Yeah. Yeah. Very much that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so... I don't know. I just think it's it's just weird that Borgoff would never offer draws. He should he should be doing some of that yeah. for strategic purposes, but he doesn't. So Beth is clued into the fact that he knows he's beat. Um, the radio person he seems to know nothing about anything. Seems to be a complete idiot and says just, that she should take the draw. He's just playing um, the board. He's not playing the player. What a dope! I do not think she should take the draw. We wait a beat, another beat, boom. Beth slowly gives him the knock. That was a gangster move by Beth. I like when he that. says draw, and was, Beth just. <clears throat> doesn't mm. give him a verbal answer. It's just the no yep. shaking her head. Very, oh, God, that was tough. No dice, no draw. The montage speeds up and there's a stop. Breath is, Beth is breathing heavy, staring very closely at Borgoff. Outside the crowd sits enraptured. Beth takes another move, looks up at him. Borgoff smiles. This is when he, the class act that Borgoff is. That internal struggle is over. He knows he's beat. He smiles. He's gracious. Picks up his king, hands it to her, says it's your game. Borgoff has lost. She takes it. Triumphant music plays. Ladies and gentlemen, the crowd goes wild. Borgoff gives her a hug and Beth is the champion. We got our happy ending. Spencer, would you you like to offer the dissenting opinion? (laughs) I'm not disputing it's a happy ending. I'm I'm disputing that every other prior bit of drama that this series has set up just magically resolves in, in this like last 20 minutes of this episode. Like... If you were just watching this episode in just itself, you'd almost believe that she's fixed all of her interpersonal relationships, she's fixed her childhood trauma, she's fixed her addiction issues, and she's the world champion of chess. I don't think she's fixed her, I don't think she's fixed her addiction issues. I think she's like a dry drunk for a week. Like I think she's just white knuckling this thing, holding on. <clears throat> but I, I don't I think she's gonna be in, I told you season two of Queen's Gambit is just all uh, just Beth at rehab just learning how to play squash <clears throat> Beth at rehab learning how to play squash and just hating the Jews that is the season two of the show <laughs> but we're not there yet we're still in celebratory mode cut to Benny getting a call he gets the news turns to Beltic <clears throat> smiles gives him the nod they erupt in celebration Woo! we see Jolene get a call she gets the news she sits down smiles to herself good for you Cracker good yep. for you and, and, and then, then they cut away, and then the, the, right after that is her realization, fuck, she's never going to pay me. That, that, that's the realization yeah. they left <laughs> off camera. <clears throat> yeah, she goes in and writes that off on the ledger. Beth goes to walk to her car, and she's being cheered. <clears throat> she turns around to see Towns. She gives him a picture, and she gets in the car. When I say she gives him a picture, she poses so that yeah, Towns can take a picture. <clears throat> then we cut to Beth and the bodyguard from the State Department, and he is telling her the president wants to see her. Apparently, he wants to play her. So this is Johnson, right? This is Johnson. And there is a dinner in Georgetown that night. Beth asks him to stop the car. She says she'd like to walk. She walks down to the park. She goes to where the tables are set up and all the old men are playing chess. She strolls very casually up to them. Someone looks up Hahnemann. This Hahnemann, they recognize her. Because she is a famous person now. She's a celebrity in Moscow. She has taken down the Russians. Another stands up and they say, Hahnemann? And they go around to greet her. She seems to be enjoying this, by the way. It's like the first time we've ever seen her seem to enjoy fame. One guy points at the board, asking her if she wants to sit down and play. She does. They reset the board. Beth smiles. Boom, boom. Hands over. Chin on top of the hands. Looks up. Says, Segirum. Or... Let's play in Russian. Boom. 
end of series end of episode that's the end that is the end um all right so we are going to go to our segments now we've done with the recap but oh. i do want to give you space to just completely lambast the show if you'd like to take a few minutes i am going to offer a lambasting offered by <laughs> one of the i think the only actual female chess player that has ever been named in this series we even get to see her briefly in this series of where they reference, and we see a depiction of Nona Grappendashvili, uh, who is. Ooh, the say that again. Nona Grappendashvili. Grappendashvili. Ooh, what a name. Um, she. It, we see her briefly, and it's acknowledged that you know it's not that weird in Russia that they have female chess players. Look, there's no, there, there's Nona right there. Uh, and in, historically, she was the first female grandmaster, and then they say a really weird line. Of where they say, but she's never played men. To offer a point of contrast between her and Beth. Yeah, I did see. I did hear that. You're, that's a good point. Yeah. Which they make a point of distinguishing her that, yeah, she's there. She's a fe- she's a female great, but she's never played men. Beth is special. Nona Gaprin Dashvili is still very much alive and still is incredibly hurt that the show said that. Oh, really? She always played men. She wouldn't have become Aww. a grandmaster without that. See, why not just do a fake person? There's no reason to like that. that I don't that like is that the move. weirdest decision. I don't like that at I mean, all. She's an old, old female chess great, and she's watching this great show, and she sees her name, and they say that about her. Can you just imagine how much her old heart just went, Why? Well, because this was her moment, right? It's a chess moment. Yeah, like, this the, is a the, moment. The show for is a chess moment in the zeitgeist. Why they, oh, they if you're going to introduce her, at least give her give her the props that she deserves. I don't like that yeah, movie. The, I, I didn't know that, and I, I really don't like that. That I I I saw that. I was like, I've researched this character. That doesn't sound right. And I looked it up, and she even did interviews. And I was like, I don't know why they said that. I was like, I, yeah, I don't know why they said that. But like, this is the actual great. This is the actual first female grandmaster. Let her have a moment with Beth. Introduce her and respect her. Why purposely cast shade on a real great for the purpose of bulking up your fake great? I was re- honestly kind of pissed at the show when I when I, when I heard that and saw that. Um, as an episode itself, the episode is good. It is fine. It is heartwarming. It is exactly what it wants to be. But the show had the potential to do a lot more interesting things and not just wrap them up in what ultimately to me is kind of the easiest, most schmaltzy way possible. It's fine. It works. But I find it ultimately kind of disappointing. Yeah. Well, I, I can't. That, look, <clears throat> it's a cheesy ending. They, they give us the happy ending. They give us the Rocky Four ending. You, whatever. You and, know what? And, and honestly, Are you I, not entertained? I honestly found the Rocky Four ending more meaningful and more powerful because it ultimately felt more earned. Rocky goes through all manner of shit to win that thing in the end of that. He gets the ever-loving crap beat out of him. He endures incredible amounts of difficulties all throughout the entire of the story. Here in the last episode, everything's just kind of coming up Beth. Everything just kind of resolves for it. Now, like you said, realistically, none of those problems really resolved. She's just in a holding pattern before they all go to hell again or go back more to a baseline where actual profound healing over the course of their lifetime can occur. But the show seems to just kind of just wrapping up with a bow and is content that its story is done. Which, again, 
it's happy, it's heartwarming. I thought it was legitimate emotional moments, but it just it felt lighter than it ultimately could have been. They could have had the same happy story with the same happy ending, but made some of these accomplishments feel a bit more meaningful in the end, at least for me. Well, I would like to. I'd like to apologize for dragging you through a series that you don't like. I did Maybe. not. I didn't dislike it. I liked ah, the series, and it reminded me how much I enjoy chess. Well, there's that. There's a, there's that. But yeah, not your favorite. But that's okay, right? Like, I mean, that is you know, fine. Look, our audience it's, needs to hey, know we don't a, love everything we watch. And it was an absolute blast to rip on it a little bit with you right here, right now. Well, that that is that is always fun. But our audience needs to know we don't always like the shows. So you know what. Um, you know, you listen to like Mandalorian, and we love Mandalorian. We we hold that in very high esteem. Mm-hmm. Uh, this show, you know, not not quite as high. I'm um, still giving. I, this... I gave it an eight. You gave it like a six and a half. Not bad scores. Above but, average. You know, certain, Definitely yeah, above, above average. average. But maybe maybe not quite what uh, some of our audience may have thought because this is a very popular show. Sure. Um, okay, let's cut to our segments. We will start with the best line of the episode. Best line of the episode. Not a lot of good. Nominees here. I got a few, but not um, many. I got a couple. Uh, do you do you want to go back and forth? Yeah, let's go back and forth. Um, um, I'm gonna. I mean, Jolene's got like half of mine, so yeah, there's that yeah, for sure. Uh, I know me, a lawyer, but the world is fucked up, and if I'm gonna change it, I can't spend all my time teaching white girls how to hold a badminton racket. I enjoyed that's that line. Good. That's a another. Yep, mm-hmm. another Jolene quote. You've been the best at what you do for so long, you don't even know what it's like for the rest of us. Mm-hmm. That's a that's a damn good line. Uh, another one from Jolene. Uh, you understand what I'm saying? I'm not your guardian angel. I'm not here to save you. Hell, I can barely save me. I'm here because you need me to be here. That's what family does. That's what we are. Someday I might need you. It's doubtful, but you never know. That's a fu- that's such a funny line. Yeah. Um, I will cut to you, uh, Luchinko. You are a marvel, my dear. I may have just played the best chess player of my life. Great line. Uh, one from Beth. I don't. It's not best line, but it's just a very... It's Beth understanding herself in a way we've not really seen previously, where she says, I have to go. If I don't, there's nothing for me to do. I'll just drink. That's an, that's an alcoholic talking with himself. That's a good read on herself. A very good point. Yeah, it is. It's, <laughs> and she's being honest. That's, what I, that's, that's the part of that that I like. I mean, yeah. Yes. I think, you know, any... <laughs> here's, a, here's a turn of phrase. Any, any sober mind looking at this, right? <laughs> Would yes. would yeah, would no. come away with the conclusion that Beth is truly is truly an alcoholic, and whatever season two, she's gonna to have to deal with that in season two, season three, season four. It's just great that she's actually talking to somebody about it, honestly. So that's that's what yes. Jolene gives us. Um, I will nominate one hokey. I understand. Got to be nominated. Let's play. It, it's a great ending to the series. Really, kind of moment. Um, Otherwise, there's a quote they do from Thomas Hus- uh, Huxley, but that's kind of cheating. So they're quoting somebody else. I, I think that's enough for me. I think I, 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 that, that gives us a good, a good enough frame to pick from. Okay. Um, so I'm going to do a honorable mention and a best line of the episode. Please. Honorable mention. If we were both in accordance here, if we both thought this was a nine, if we both were like, yay, 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 cheer, 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 woohoo. I love Beth Harmon. I love that it ended this way. Everything's great. God bless Netflix for giving us the Queen's Gambit. It's been a marvel. Mm-hmm. I would say let's play. Mm-hmm. That's That would be it because it would be the bow tie on the series. Yeah. It would be exciting. It would be, be that cheer-worthy moment to wrap things up. Yes. Um, but we didn't both like the the <laughs> both like it that much. We, we weren't quite there. 
I'm not willing to give it the let's play. I'm not willing to, to, to do that. I am going to give best line of the episode. Episode 7 of Netflix is the Queen Gambit. The series finale, you've been the best at what you do for so long, you don't even know what it's like for the rest of us. I think that was honestly one of the best... That was a very just good line. That was a great moment of a character confronting another character. It was a good bit of television. Best scene of the episode... I feel like I'm blowing through the segments here. It's, I mean, it's got to be the, the rematch with, with Morgoth, doesn't it? I mean, uh, it really just depends what you're best getting out of the episode. I mean, as an emotional moment, as a heartwarming moment, for me, Mr. Scheibel's room did make me teary-eyed. Because it, it was a well-set-up scene. It's, or it factors fuck in. it. You, fuck it. That, that's it. You're right. I'm with you. Yeah. That's it, better. It, it was a powerful scene. It was... And we talked about how much Mr. Scheibel meant to us in the first couple episodes. And so we really did care about their relationship and really did care about him. And so seeing at least an element of a payoff for that or resolution for that at the end was heartfelt and meaningful. And I liked that quite a bit. You're right. I, I'm, I'm switching. It's not the rematch with Borgoff, although, you know, obviously that had big implications for the series. Best scene of the episode is Beth looking at the corkboard and seeing all of the, the cutouts all of the newspaper updates about her chess career that Mr. Scheibel followed uh, while being in uh, being out 10 bucks from that snake, <laughs> that shark, Beth Harmon. Uh, okay, now we will cut to my favorite part of every week here on Mangum Talks TV. It is Spencer's Wikipedia Spiral of the Week. Spencer, take it away. Also, remind me later as we continue to do this for years to come, we need to do a lot of heartwarming shit that I really enjoyed, just so our, you, both you and our audience aren't full, fully convinced from what is a monstrous amount of evidence that I'm a heartless robot. Because there is heartwarming stuff I do quite like, and there I do really like There is a really lot like of episode. Stuff. There is a lot of, lot of tape on, on Mangotalks.com of, of you poo-pooing the happy ending, you poo-pooing just the, a, the bring us all together moments, the kumbaya stuff. In so many different ways, in so many different settings. Like, even just poop, like, I'll even just, like, poo-poo, like, you know, comforting foods during different segments. Let me assure you, I'm not a complete stone-cold bastard. There's a heart, there's a, a potential for a Grinch moment in there with me, and maybe we'll explore some of those later. But for right now, we have a Wikipedia spiral in front of us. And so I feel it best to wrap up what is our, our first two-parter on the subject of the 1972 World Chess Championship. Please do. we Hanging on the edge of my seat since the last one. I discussed Bobby Fischer's background coming at the moment. I discussed Boris Spassky's moment. Let's come together at the tournament. First things first, while this tournament on the show took place in Moscow, there is no goddamn way that the U.S. State Department would have agreed to that in real life. This tournament, the World Championship Tournament, is happening in Reykjavik, Iceland. Very much a meeting-in-the-middle kind of moment. Ooh, that's where Bobby Fischer ended up, right? Uh, that is one of many places that he fled when he was, you know, on the run from a U.S. warrant for providing essentially revenue and support to the Yugoslavian government during the course of that series of sanctions. Yes, we'll get to that. Cool. Um, setting up this tournament became incredibly difficult, despite the fact that, you know, essentially it was the world champion agreeing to play Fisher. Fisher had so many demands that he was putting in place for this tournament to work, which, from what we discussed to Bobby Fisher, should be no surprise. Some things were agreed upon in advance. It would be a $125,000 prize fund, just pure inflation, ignoring price point parity, that is like $800,000 prize fund. That's a fair amount of money, no question, in modern dollars. Five-eighths would go to the winner, three-eighths would go to the loser. So everybody's making something out of this. And the players would also get 30% of the television proceeds and 30% of the film rights, too. So, and film rights, too. So, great. That was not enough for Bobby Fischer. 
He also demanded that they get 30% of all of the box office receipts for those film rights. Because wow. he, he then, as a result of the, these uh, problems with negotiations, missed the opening ceremony and only agreed to play after the prize money was ultimately doubled by a wealthy British investor. So now up to $250,000, again, in 1972, that they agreed to a two-day postponement so that he could get there and rest for a little bit before they started to play. And... Not even, not even, even with those concessions, it took Henry Kissinger personally calling on the phone, saying, "Dude, what the fuck are you doing? This is bigger than you. Get to the damn tournament!" Along with just nonstop cable calls and everything else, to try to force him to actually get there and do what he'd agreed to do. He even demanded that a particular chess set from a particular company be used as their board. And when the original chess set arrived, he wasn't satisfied with it and made them remake it. But. Eventually, he agreed to come and agreed to sit down. And notably, neither Spassky nor Fisher came alone. Both actually had three different people that came with them. Spassky came with three grandmasters of chess coming from both Russia and, I think, Estonia. Uh, while Fisher had his second, uh, William Lombardi, who was a chess grandmaster, teacher, and Catholic priest, just to make it exciting. Uh, his lawyer, Paul Marshall, who'd originally, uh, who'd been originally responsible for renegotiating with the World Chess Federation, to change the rules for how these tournaments occurred, or change the rules for how it would lead up to these tournaments occurring, and also a rep from the U.S. Chess Federation, because no way were they letting him go alone, because of course they would be there. He's their investment, too. Uh, Fred Kramer was his name. Uh, the rules for the tournament, just so the rules here are very clearly established, unlike on the show, so I can explain those out. Mm -hmm. It was best of 24 games. See, that... <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know... Again, it's head-to-head, -head, so it makes it a little more expensive that they would invest a lot of time with the two of them playing. But that's a hell of a lot of chess sure that these two is, were playing. Sure. Each win's worth a point, a draw's worth half a point. At the, uh, a tie, if they end up tying at the end, 12, 12, uh, you know, um, in terms of point score, Spassky will continue to remain the, the reigning champion. Okay, tie goes the winner. Yeah, uh, they, play three, the they play three games per week, and they have to do 40 moves within two and a half hours for each of these games. The rules are very much clearly set for what the process of this will be. So here's here's what they've established. This is not a made-for-TV moment. No. <laughs> this, is, this is very slow, methodical, uh, and, and probably painful to watch. It, still, the world is enraptured by this because it's 1972. What the hell else were they going to do? The Vietnam War was basically wrapping up. Yeah, <laughs> so, we got to kick those Soviets' ass. Yeah, got to kick the Soviets somehow. So the world's fascinated, the world's engaged, and, you know, maybe they just had a little bit more patience there for this kind of thing. However, even after Fisher arrived, he was still the same erratic son of a bitch he'd been throughout all of his career, which the American players were like, eh, it's just the way he is. The Russians were really damn offended. But for example, he, for the first game, showed up nine minutes after Spassky had pressed his clock. Spassky just had to sit there waiting for nine minutes after the appointed time after having moved and pressed his clock before Fisher even showed so up. So Fisher wasted nine minutes of his time. He wasted time. nine minutes of his time to show up at the first match. What a dick. Um, Spassky won the first game, maybe because Fisher had wasted nine minutes to get there, after <laughs> move 56 when Fisher resigned. Uh, it was close the entire time heading for a draw, but Fisher made at least two incredibly poor moves during the course of that game, which everybody was almost just like, Ugh. even his second was like, it's like moving the pieces behind the board. He's like, you obvious mistakes. Uh, as a result, Spassky won the first game. Fisher immediately blamed everybody but himself for this happening. Of course he did. Uh, the Jews. And he, 
well, this time he blamed the cameras, which, you know, maybe they had juice spirits in them or something. Uh, he insisted that all of the cameras be removed. This where, you know, the people that agreed to host this are doing so under the basis they're getting a significant portion of, the, you know, the film rights. Hell, the players are getting a significant portion of the film rights. And yet Fisher's demanding that all the cameras be taken out. Obviously this was refused because it was part of the reason that everybody had agreed to do this. And so Fisher just refused to play the second game. He didn't show up. Spassky's hmm. just sitting there alone. So is that, a, is that a forfeit? He forfeited the second game entirely. And in fact, was about to get on a plane to come home after he'd been defied with respect to the cameras. It again took Kissinger calling him a deluge of telegrams, his second personally intervening, and finally Spassky to actually be the better man. For Spassky said, if it'll calm you down, for the third game, we can play it in a private room. No cameras, no audience, just so you can get comfortable again. Because Spassky was a really nice guy that actually wanted to be able to play this out and was an incredible sportsman in a lot of ways. Wait a second, you're saying that the the Russian was a nice guy and the U.S. guy was a dick? Look at that. Yep. What? Spassky personally agreed in a way that ultimately, a lot of of commentators later say it cost him a lot that he agreed to do this and probably hurt his game. But he agreed to play the game in essentially in a private room for the third game. Uh, Fisher won that next game following an adjournment. It's a fun adjournment, too, of where they... They played it out. They wrote down the move. The the, the uh, game starts the next day, and Fisher reveals what his move is, and Spassky immediately resigns. Just like, yep, that was the right move. We're done. <laughs> Didn't need to see anything further than that. Wow. Um, by the time of the fourth, by the time of the fourth game, they've agreed now to put it back in front of cameras. Um, and over the course of the next games, Fisher now brings it back to tide. He co- overcomes his two-game deficit. We go in now to the sixth game. The sixth game is simply legendary. It's widely commentated on as one of the most memorable games of chess ever played. Fisher had publicly hinted and taunted that he had a secret to a play that he was going to pull in some way, which put the Russians in knots, because they're all debating what his opening is going to be. And finally, Spassky just says, fuck it, I'm going to do the opening I'm most comfortable with. It really doesn't matter what he's going to play. We'll adjust. Play my game. I'll play my game. Yes. Fisher comes in, and he plays an opening. An opening that is more than a little bit appropriate for this show. He plays the Queen's Gambit. Wow, look at that. And which is notable because, depending on who you listen to, it either was the only time or only possibly the third time in any recorded game that he ever played this opening. It was didn't not- Beth say didn't Beth say in the show she never plays the Queen's Gambit? Yep. <clears throat> and I think she does actually during the final game or final tournament too as well. Just re- reference to that. Uh He'd even publicly on numerous occasions criticized the idea of playing the Queen's Gambit. And so it completely caught everybody off guard. This is Spassky really trying to play catch-up. Because he plays his, I think it's called the Tartakower Defense, which is a standard defense. But he doesn't know how to play uh, Fisher at Queen's Gambit. Because why would he have prepared for something that he knows Fisher won't play? Fisher proceeds to go through a devastating series of moves and games. And so by the 41st move, Spassky, having no hope, steps back and resigns. And in one of the most memorable moments in chess history, he smiles, he stands up, and he leads the audience in applauding Fisher right there for his victory. With Fisher utterly flabbergasted at this level of sportsmanship played out before him. No way in God's green earth would Fisher have ever done the same thing if he lost. 
absolutely not. With this win, Fisher takes the lead and he never surrenders it. Sp- Spassky wins one more game and pretty much almost all of the rest are draws because now that Fisher's in the lead, as much as he criticized the strategy, he draws most of the remaining games. Because why would you risk your lead from here? It's a very strategic kind of decision. Um, at, during the course of these mini draws and a couple Fisher wins and one Spassky win, we proceed to see Fisher just continued, continued issue demands, even though he's winning, even though the tournament's coming up him. He now says that all the cameras have to be shut off because they're committing, they're making too much noise, uh, which the television cameras very, begr- television crews very begrudgingly do, which during the tournament leads to a lawsuit by the guy who's controlling the television rights against Fisher. Because he's costing him money. Uh, He demands that the first seven rows of spectators be removed because they're too distracting for him. Eventually, he's willing to accept that only the first three are removed. Um, But in the end, despite all of this needless conflict by Fisher and some legitimate sportsmanship by Spassky and some great moves by Spassky and some really bad moves by Spassky at various times, after the 21st game, it is done. Fisher has gotten the 12 and a half points that he needed to get the majority of the points, and so he wins 12 and a half to eight and a half with seven wins outright, 11 draws to, th- to three Spassky wins. As you can see, more draws than total wins by either player. That's perfectly normal. From there, Fisher has become the celebrity hero of the U.S. He comes back. He gets ticker tape parades. He goes on television, The Tonight Show. He gets offered millions of dollars endorsements, which he rejects all of them. Uh, He's on Sports Illustrated, but he's not happy. Having now won the major tournament, he is certain that the tournament was not fair. In favor of him, oddly enough, he becomes convinced that the strategy that he used to win in terms of getting all these draws just encourages players to draw and not allow, essentially, players to get behind to have any opportunity of catching catching up. Yep. So he insists that the rules be changed. Um, no. (laughs) Not not, not that, no. But good idea. Maybe he should have gone this route. Maybe the Chess Federation would have agreed to it. He wants three changes. He wants the rules to be changed back to what they were in the very first time a world champion was crowned. Back to Wilhelm Steinitz, back in the 1880s of where he wants it to be, instead of total points, it's the first one to 10 wins. Draws don't count for anything. First one who gets 10 wins, wins. Uh, He wants it to be an endless number of games. No limit on games. You can draw forever. Until somebody gets 10 wins, it's not over yet. I like that. He also wants it that uh, if, for any reason, they get up to 9-9, it stops there. The current champion is declared the continuing champion, but they split the prize money equally whatever the prize money is. These are the three rules he puts forward. Now, Chess Congress, he also makes these um, unconditional. These are not subject to negotiation, utterly non-negotiable. That unless you agree to these rules, I will never play a chess game. I will not defend my title. I will not participate in international chess uh, championships, chess, championship tournaments again. So the Chess Federation considers these rules. Of these three, they agree to the first one. The idea, the first one to 10, to 10 wins, wins, regardless of how, regardless of how many games. Because, mm-hmm. as you said, that just sounds more fun, honestly. Yeah, that's cool. I like that. Uh, they don't go for the other ones, though, because they think if you have an utterly endless amount of games, that's just that, that could be nightmarish, because you essentially could draw it forever until people just wear out. 
And if we make it, and we're not going to do the nine nine thing splitting because that sounds dumb. Um, Fisher refuses in any way to accept, to accept that kind of concession and just says, "Nope. Well, I've heard what you said. I made this non-negotiable. I'm never playing again." So it's three years later when the next world championship comes around and and a um, and Anatoly Kar- Karpov comes to challenge him Karpov. for his title. Mm-hmm. Fisher doesn't even show up. Doesn't even sit. Instead, it's Karpov just having to sit there for the forfeits because Fisher's not even attending the damn tournament. Despite all kinds of assistance from his government, from fellow players, from everything else, that, what the hell were you doing? A lot of people debated kind of why he did this. Uh, the possibility he's just a stubborn bas- bastard also being entertained. Yes. But it seems like the dominant narrative seems to be is that, effectively, he'd achieved everything that he ever wanted to do. He vindicated himself as a chess player. He doesn't need to accomplish anything more. Now all he can do is lose that. And so he became kind of desperate to not lose it. So he basically reconciled the Floyd idea. Floyd Mayweather. Yeah, yeah, point of comparison. So he essentially kind of just accepted that, well, I'm the undefeated world champion because I've not been defeated. And he continued to declare himself the undefeated world champion from there. Uh, to, uh, to quote a leading source on it, the world championship he won validating his view of himself as a chess player, but it also insulated him from the humanizing influences of the world around him. He descended in what can only be considered a kind of madness. And as a result of Wilde still declaring himself the world champion, he essentially didn't play another competitive game of chess for 20 years. Um, I'm going to come back to what that was here in a minute, but to talk about Spassky, Spassky, during the same period, got married, continued to be pretty much one of the top 10 players in the world for about the next 13 or 15 years, through about the mid-80s. After getting married, he moved to France and became a French citizen. Didn't defect, still every now and then would play for the Soviet team, but was no longer living in Russia. Yeah, smart move. Probably a smart move. R- Russia to France? Pfft, upgrade. Uh, he had one son, uh, and he continued to be a very well-regarded, uh, you know, kind of grand old man of chess for years afterwards. Kind of a really a point of a lot of players were marked as they were really coming up, like Judith Polgar that I mentioned previously, of, they would play him to indicate that they were developing ability, even though he was no longer regarded as one of the best in the world. He was still widely respected, particularly for his wry and very self-deprecating sense of humor. One of the things that brought him, but brought both Fisher and Spassky back into the public light, though, was an exhibition match in 1992, styled by Fisher this. as the revenge match of the 20th century. I remember that, yeah. Or my Fisher, dumbass was rooting for Fisher. I didn't. I had no idea. I shouldn't be rooting for him. Where Fisher got some wealthy Yugoslavian backers to put together a rematch between him and Spassky, occurring in Yugoslavia, yeah. of where there would be a five million dollar purse. Or even the loser would get 1.65 million of that. So, of course, Spassky, who at this point was 96th in the world, Fisher wasn't even ranked because he hadn't played for 20 years, agreed. I, I'm willing to get my ass kicked on a public stage for $1.65 million, $1.65 million and I think Spassky agreed. Faux show. Um, I mean, as I said, Spassky was a French national by that point, uh, 96th in the world. Fisher pretty easily won with a match that most everybody agreed, and eh, they were well enough played, but they were kind of archaic. Of where, since Fisher basically hadn't played competitively in 20 years, his style of play was basically viewed as kind of being out of date. And a lot of the leads, including Kasparov, really just kind of dismissed him as saying, eh, you know, he's still good, but he wouldn't even really factor in the top half in the world anymore now. Which I'm sure smarted all the crap for Fisher. Fisher, Ooh. however, Ooh. upon winning this rematch tournament of the 20th century, declared himself the undefeated champion of the world. Once again, 
and proceeded to again never play another competitive game for the rest of his life. In terms of how these two wrapped up, uh, or where they are right now, uh, well, Fisher's in the is in a hole in the ground, but we'll get there He's in a second. <laughs> yeah, uh, Fisher. Well, for one, we've mentioned several times the whole searching for Bobby Fisher thing. Uh, Fisher apparently really fucking hated that movie because they, according to him, never called him to get na- rec- to get uh, permission to use his name or use the rights for that film. And Mr. Bobby book. Fisher, uh, you're, I would like to speak to Bobby Fisher's ghost right now, ladies and yeah. gentlemen. Bobby Fisher, shut the hell up because you were the worst. And that movie <laughs> made everyone like you. Yeah. Like, you suck as well, a person. It, it but that movie it- made people root for him. It made, him a a con- bit. it made him a concept. It made the idea of a project coming in the mold of Bobby Fischer a thing that everybody was still thinking about, even though Bobby Fischer pretty much completely disappeared from the cultural zeitgeist at that point. Instead, uh, he became famous for openly denying the Holocaust. And I got a few quotes Ooh. here. Do you, you want to hear a few quotes from Fischer about these things? Ooh. All right. If you're, you're, uh, if, you're, if you're listening to this in the car with your kids, it might be a time to turn it down. Um, thank you for uh, listening so far. Um, anyway, uh, adults can continue. Let's let's hear Bobby Fisher at his worst. Okay. And these are roughly, these are essentially, you know, from oldest to newest going forward in time. But here for a few ones. Uh, we referred to the United States, the United States, um, which, uh, sorry, I left out a key detail. That whole uh, 1992 rematch in Yugoslavia. Got him an international arrest warrant because he was in violation of UN sanctions orders against Yugoslavia during that period. Because that was in the middle of the Balkan Wars and we had a lot of reasons to put sanctions on Yugoslavia during that period. So, yeah, yeah, Fisher wasn't able to return to the United States and kind of became a public, you know, a a man without a home roaming between countries. Iceland, like you mentioned, Japan, Hungary, all around the world. This also built up his grudge against the United States and being convinced that the reason they were persecuting him was because of the Jews. So he said things like, the United States is a farce controlled by dirty, hook-nosed, circumcised Jew bastards. That he Ooh, was the duh. victim. That's not even creative. Give me a, can I, do they sell Spassky shirts on Amazon? Can you give me a Spassky shirt? <laughs> well, I'm, I'm going to get back to something weird about Spassky here at the end, too. But, um, Uh-oh. <laughs> Maybe not. It, it, it's truly just weird. I'll, I'll get to it here in a second. Um, that, he also said that he was the, the, he was the victim of an international Jewish conspiracy. That when people took pictures of one of his notebooks at one point, it indicated twelve thirteen ninety nine. This is what he just wrote in his notebook: twelve thirteen ninety nine. It's time to start randomly killing Jews. Literally, he wrote that in his notebook. Tough, uh, tough uh, he, look. Tough look for Bobby Fisher. He applauded nine eleven. He uh, tried to renounce his U.S. citizenship, and he was publicly quoted as saying, "After nine eleven." I hope the country will be taken over by the military. They'll close down all the synagogues, arrest all the Jews, execute hundreds of thousands of Jewish ringleaders. After that, in a period living in various forms of exile while being detained at various points because of that arrest warrant, he died of kidney failure in 2008 at the age of 64. Spassky is still alive. He is a very old man. He is 84 years old. You know what he could have got in America if he would have stuck around and not, you know cheered for 9-11 and, and wanted us to kill all the Jews and just generally be the worst. What's that? Dialysis. Just kidding, you, know. <laughs> you know, that's an excellent point. Hadn't really considered We've that. We've got a lot of dialysis centers here in America. Uh, Spassky is still very much alive. He still very much plays chess. Uh, and he still makes a lot of public appearances. He's 84 years old now. However, a really weird thing happened in 2012 that still no one's really quite sure how to interpret because there's been very contrary conflicting accounts as to what the hell happened. Bear in mind, I told you that he moved to France and lived in France with his wife for, at this point, 
40 years at the time this happened, greater part of 40 years. In 2012, he disappeared and suddenly reappeared in Moscow, saying publicly in an interview that he had um, essentially been under like house arrest, that he'd been su- he'd suffered from several strokes and subject to horrible poor treatment of people trying to kill him, and that he effectively had to flee through the aid of old friends to get away from everything that was back there. Lord. Uh, however, the account from his son and his sister and a few other people is that no, he, while suffering from kind of strokes, because he's suffered a few recently, was effectively kidnapped by Russian agents and transported back to Russia and is now being kept there and they can't contact him. Fucking jeez. Which of these is true? I don't know. It I don't is know. I mean, I, I, here's what I do know is that our podcast is, is released worldwide. We have listeners in a lot of different countries, and I would like to say now that I have nothing negative to say about the Russian government. <laughs> I would like that. I would just like that pointed out. I, you know, I appreciate that you make those efforts to continue to make Putin a, a great personal friend. Um, I have no comment. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I wish I had a more, you know, come together point to end on, but that was just a really weird kind of ending point for both these characters. They were their respective greats. They went very different paths. And though they came together for this kind of world challenge moment of the chest first and foremost, they ended following very different paths in life. That is perhaps more a reflection of the individuals that they actually were rather than the characters that they were necessarily made to be. It's just a lesson folks that, you know, you can cheer, you can rah, rah, we can USA all we want. But, you know, if you want to actually root for the person who deserves rooting for, sometimes you have to dig in and figure out exactly who these individuals are, because under no circumstance at all, should anyone ever have been rooting for Bobby Fisher? <laughs> That's the moral of the story for me. Um, okay. Well, I'm glad you ended on Bobby Fisher. Cause I know that, you know, when the queen's gambit started, chess came back into the zeitgeist. It was a story about a young person who goes to Russia to beat the Russians at chess. Everyone drew the parallel to Bobby Fischer. Of course they did. Uh, I'm glad you, you ended on that. Anything else you want to cover? No, I submit this for your consideration, and you previously deferred on the subject of whether this would make it through, even make it to the floor to receive a vote. So I'm curious to see whether this makes it through Congress. 100% passes through committee. 100% goes through, through Senate. Bill changes a little bit, right? Bill changes because now the bill is really the focus is Bobby Fisher's just a dick. Um, <laughs> Can back I keep- over to the House, passed by the House, gleefully signed uh, by our president, who is not not a big fan of all the anti-Semitic I, talk. I, I asked the illustrious senator from West Virginia whether I can please keep the minimum wage increase in there. Uh, we're going to have to get the parliamentarian to rule on that. God damn it. <laughs> Uh, yes, this is obviously passes, Spencer. Very good job on the Wikipedia Spirals of the Week this week and all of the episodes here for Queen's Gambit. It's been a it's been a joy doing this podcast with you, reviewing Netflix as the Queen's Gambit. Thanks everybody for hanging in there with us. Please check out all of our other pods on mangumtalks.com. Check out uh Mangum Watches, uh Mangum Talks, check out uh Mangum Reads, check out Pottery. We have a lot of different podcasts. They're all out there for you, depending on what you're interested in. We've got a lot of content. Thank you for joining us here for the Queen's Gambit. We will be back very soon where we will be covering adaptation of John Grisham's novels. That's right, ladies and gentlemen. I'm going to be the scholar in the next few episodes. Looking forward to it, Spencer. See you then. Till then. See you.